I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode 11 of Failed Critic. Last week, I started off by saying if it was an anniversary, this would have been that would have been the Tin Podcast, but not the Tin Pop Podcast, but mostly down to me, it ended up that way as I forgot the name of every single film I was trying to talk about and then really messed up the editing so we didn't have spoiler alert. So <laughs> this week, hopefully we'll be better. We've brought back Jerry McCauley to try and help that. Hello. And we've also got James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes with us. Hello. And myself, Steve Norman. Uh, To help things along, for the good, the bad and the ugly, I have not been able to watch any films this week, so if I haven't watched any, I can't forget what they're called. Classic Steve. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) It's excellent logic. (laughs) Glorious Carl Pilkington-style logic. (laughs) Uh, In Triple Bill, we'll be going for our best three documentaries. And in the uh, new release review at the end, we'll be going. We'll be talking about the five-year engagement starring Emily Blunt and Jason Segel. Um, but we won't be doing a spoiler alert because generic rom-com, boy meets girl, boy and girl fall out, boy and girl get back together. It's not really worthy of a spoiler alert, Spoilers. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for everyone, I've just ruined it for you. Anyway, ruined the narrative innovation. Yes. In rom- Let's let's start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then, who wants to get us going? I'll get us going actually, just in case my baby wakes up or something. She's quiet at the moment, so uh, yeah, I've got I've seen three extra films apart from the ones that I might have rewatched in Triple Bill and. Welcome to episode 11 of Failed Critic. Last week, I started off by saying if it was an anniversary, this would have been that would have been the Tin podcast, but not the Tin Pop podcast, but mostly down to me, it ended up that way as I forgot the name of every single film I was trying to talk about and then really messed up the editing so we didn't have spoiler alert. So <laughs> this week, hopefully we'll be better. We've brought back Jerry McCauley to try and help that. Hello. And we've also got James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes with us. Hello. And myself, Steve Norman. Uh, To help things along, for the good, the bad and the ugly, I have not been able to watch any films this week, so if I haven't watched any, I can't forget what they're called. Classic Steve. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) It's excellent logic. 
<laughs> glorious Carl Pilkington style logic. Uh, in Triple Bill, we'll be going for our best free documentaries. And in the uh, new release review at the end, we'll be going, we'll be talking about the five year engagement starring Emily Blunt and Jason Segel. Um, but we won't be doing a spoiler alert because generic rom com, boy meets girl, boy and girl fall out, boy and girl get back together. It's not really worthy of a spoiler alert, Spoilers. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for everyone, I've just ruined it for you. Anyway, ruined the narrative innovation. Yes. Let's let's start off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then, who wants to get us going? I'll get us going actually, just in case my baby wakes up or something. She's quiet at the moment, so uh, yeah, I've got I've seen three extra films apart from the ones that I might have rewatched in Triple Bill and everything like that. Um, and the first one I've seen is one that Steve has previously not been too impressed with. Um, but I liked it, actually. I watched Primer this week. The uh, 2004 low-budget uh, well, science fiction time travel it, type it, film. It just made my mind, my tiny mind, fall apart. Yeah, and it, me as well, actually, to be honest. It, it's, it really does look cheap. But not in a in a horrible way. It just looks like they didn't have a lot of money and so they went around doing everything they could to make the film look as good for as little money. It reminded me a lot of Clerks, actually. Very Obviously a very different plot and very different style. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the camera shots and just a lot of the feel of it felt like a really, really good student film. Um, a very simple premise, really. The, the premise itself is very simple. However, the execution left me completely scratching my head. Uh, I've probably got about 40% of this film on my first viewing because it's not just the execution of the plot. It is There is a lot of very technical language and the film doesn't really wait for you to catch up. It just carries on going. Um, and it was one of those I needed to go and look at on the internet afterwards and someone had made some very nice flowcharts and things for it which, to help me. Which don't help. Stuff. <laughs> I've, oh, I've, they did help me I've, I've looked at them I just thought it's, it's the most complicated time travel film I've ever seen yeah it's uh, but it also raises some interesting philosophical questions very similar to some of the questions raised in the prestige and I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't want to ruin either of the two films if people haven't seen them um, and it did actually remind me quite a lot of Christopher Nolan in that it was unashamedly intellectual and it's 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 kind of attitude was well if you, if you don't get it if you're not keeping up sodger uh, we're just going to plow on anyway but I, I it was an hour and 15 minutes um if it had been any longer i i probably would have melted my brain as well but i i, I really do think it, there's something in there uh, and I, I really want to watch it again now. So, so that's that's the first film I saw. Um, and the other one I'm going to talk about um, that I saw this week, I finally got around to watching Thirty Minutes or Less, which I've been meaning to watch for a little while. I don't know if anyone knows about it. It's basically it stars. Um, it's directed by Ruben Fleischer, who did um, Zombieland. Uh, I think it's his follow-up film. It stars Jesse Eisenberg, and um, it's also stars. And um, this is where. I realised it's late and things like that. The guy from Eastbound and Down, <laughs> Danny McBride, that's his name. Um, basically, the story is uh, a pizza delivery guy gets a bomb strapped to him by um, two 
kind of rednecks and gets told to rob a bank or they're going to blow him up. Um, it's, you know, screwball comedy type thing. Starts off with uh, The Hives, Tick, Tick, Boom, which I've always wanted to do in a film. So I, I like that. That was very good. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, actually, the thing is, he plays like this really slacker pizza delivery guy who's got dreams and stuff like that. And he actually just seems like if Mark Zuckerberg had no ambition and stuff. Because um, Social Network was the first thing I'd ever seen Jesse Eisenberg in. So everything I've seen him in since, he just seems like a Mark Zuckerberg, a failure Mark Zuckerberg, and he's ended up delivering pizzas, which gives it a kind of layer that I don't think the filmmakers intended. But, um, yeah, I'll be honest, it's hardly very Hitchcock in its plotting. It's quite a fun film. It's got some good jokes. There's a really good joke about um, uh, his best mate. As they're talking about bomb disposal, and he says, oh, have you not seen The Hurt Locker? And he says that he's had it on Netflix on his table for the last three months and goes into this bit of a spiel about the fact that he doesn't know why he pays for Netflix. He's only had two DVDs from them in the last four months and they've just sat on his table. And I've very much been in that position before. It gets a bit weird, though. When you actually look into it, apparently it's not based on a true story, but something very, very similar happened in about 2002 and the guy died. Okay, um, And when you look into the real-life story that... Well, Ruben Fleischer and the cast all said they had no idea about this true story, but the writers had a vague idea about it. But it's very, very similar. But in the true story, the guy died, and he may or may not have been on the plot, but didn't realise it was a real bomb or something. And once I started reading that, I, I, it did lead me into this moral question of whether or not this is actually... What, what, can I laugh at this now? Um, it made me feel really uncomfortable that... Um, that this film was making light of some of an actual real situation here. Um, so I found that actually a little bit weird. And that kind of affected how I felt about it afterwards. It may well have affected the fact that it did absolutely nothing in the cinemas and everything like that. So yeah, it was it was reasonably it was funny. It had um uh had some decent performances, but it was certainly nothing groundbreaking. I don't think it deserved raking over uh, quite a tragic account just for comedy purposes basically so yeah that that's my general thoughts on it so that's my two the other film i saw was ides of march i won't go into it i'll just say ides of march that was pretty good anyone who likes a political drama and things like that likes ryan gosling well yeah um yeah half decent there we go who wants to take the mantle now then for film reviewing go on i'll, I'll go next go on then. Over here. Mine are, are not quite as... Um, actually, I'm going to seem like a bit of a psychopath now with my, my two choices, I've just realised. Film, one of, them's, one of them's good. One of them's absolutely outstanding. But the good one is maybe... I think I'm, I'm, I'm out on my own in thinking that it's only good. And I think James is going to get annoyed at me for, uh, for going into this one. But I'll go for the, the excellent one first. We'll stick to the positives. Um, I watched Tyrannosaur which is Paddy Considine's uh, debut as a director. Uh, it was out last year. Sort of, if you've seen any Paddy Considine films, you know he's in a lot of Shane Meadows stuff. Um, it's a similar kind of atmosphere and setting and theme, but it basically is an examination of sort of the rotten core of British society and sort of the lowlifes that are around, but not, aren't necessarily just pure scumbags. It's sort of exploring their characters and trying to understand the reasons why they act like you do and not just being some stereotypical, you know, view of council estates or anything like that. And it's a real 
distressing film, I would say. It's very violent, very shocking, really sort of from the first minute. I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. The first minute is, is violent and quite shocking and horrible. And I, I was watching it and I was thinking, mm, I'm not sure I can uh, deal with this. But if this is the first scene, was uh, was pretty extreme and pretty, you know, at the limits of what I'm willing to to tolerate watching as 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 a form of entertainment. So it was quite impressive in the way that even though it was exceptionally violent and really shocking, it was used in a in a sort of careful way, if I can say careful. It was it was used where it was necessary and, and to shock, but without being, you know, excessive and without being something that was maybe just violence for the sake of entertaining the crowds and, and being violent and, and getting the teenage lads in. Do you know what I mean? It was a very serious look at, at violence and how that affects people. Is it, is um, it similar in tone to Dead Man's Shoes? In a way. But whereas Dead Man's Shoes is about like one man's vendetta kind of thing, Yeah. Um, this is more exploring relationships. And there's two main characters in it. Um, there's Olivia Coleman, who is Sophie from Peep Show. I think that's where most people know her. That's that's how I saw her when I when I started watching this because she's Sophie from Peep Show. So you know, it, it took me a while to to remove that barrier because she's so familiar from that role to me. But she is absolutely unbelievably good in this film. She is breathtakingly good at what she does. She looks a bit different because she's got short hair now. So you know, she's not like she was in the earlier series of Peep Show. But she's so different to the character she's typically identified with. She plays um, a woman who volunteers in a, in a charity shop, a Christian charity shop. Um, and she comes into contact with uh, Peter Mullen's character, who is a sort of aging, violent, possibly alcoholic man with you know real demons haunting him. And he's really struggling to, to deal with the things that are haunting him and, and bringing his life down. And he... Um, you know, he, he's the one committing the violence at the start, really. And he happens to run into her shop and they, they sort of strike up a weird, un, unlikely, not even friendship at first. They start building a relationship, basically, and getting to know each other, but in a very uneasy way. Uh, and he, you know, assumes that she's posh and doesn't know anything like the hardships that he has. And it turns out that actually she's hiding her own struggles as well. And it, 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 he starts having to deal with that. And he's got lots of other things going on in his life. I'd say very violent at times and it's, some of the scenes are just brutal and it's some of the most brutal cinema I've ever seen but afterwards it was just like wow I mean it was just it was just brilliant I mean I, I can't recommend highly enough don't watch it if you want to be cheered up and you know full of the joys of spring or anything like that but um, it's really really powerful the, the performance from Peter Mullen is outstanding um, Olivia Coleman's husband as well uh, is played by Eddie Marsan, who you may know from a, well, quite a lot of roles, actually. Um, he is Lestrade in the Sherlock Holmes films, the, the recent Sherlock Holmes films. Um, he is the he's in The Illusionist. He's in Beef Vendetta. He's in... Oh, he's really recognisable, very English actor. I think he was in um, the likes of uh, Rockstock and those kind of films as well. He's, he's really sort of cockney typecast actor in a way he's, he's in Mission Impossible 3 as well if I remember rightly and he plays a real sort of menacing terrifying horrible character um, who is Olivia Colman's husband in this and I, w I won't go into any more than that but it's a very dark film but you have to watch it it's one of those films that when I found out about it my dad said he'd got to see it 
and I said, well, is it good? I've heard good things about it. And he just sort of buffed his cheeks out and raised his eyebrows and went, yeah, but there's always the sort of shocking element to it. And it is shocking. It's not something you would sit down and watch with your parents, but at the same time, it's just amazingly powerful cinema. And if Paddy Constantine's doing this on his debut, I mean, he's going to be making some great films, let's put it that way. Um, I'm amazed this didn't get Oscar nods, but the two performances from the protagonists are just outstanding, like absolutely outstanding. What else have you been watching then? Something a bit more cheerful, I hope. Uh, no. No? Unfortunately, no. Not cheerful either. Uh, watching The Clockwork Orange, which, as I say, I'm going to sound like an absolute psychopath has, now. Has, Eng- has England getting knocked out of the Euros just put you in a spiral of depression yeah, and anger and rage? Yeah, the edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> watch The Clockwork Orange, because I'm trying to work through the IMDb list. Um, it was good, in, and with elements of being great, but I wouldn't say it's a great film like everyone made out that it was. Th- that's obviously shockingly violent as well, and in a sort of different way to to Tyrannosaur. And the thing that you know, if I really compare them, Tyrannosaur seems a lot more real, and mm. it's a lot more the way it's filmed. It's a lot more up close, and you feel those characters a lot more than Clockwork Orange. Sort of deliberately, I think, sort of tries to desensitize you to the violence and try and make it seem really normal and you know that is that is the world that that is in and it's a you know obviously a futuristic setting it's not quite as brutal and in your face as the, as the violence is in Taiwan so it's a very good film Cubish direction at times is just outstanding and brilliant I mean the the scene with the the sort of sped up threesome uh, yeah that that was you know fantastic and I was thinking well no one's really must have done that before that was that was a great little way to to do it and some of it is great but at times it just felt really overly long a lot of the shots were too lingering it was too slow at times I thought that held it back it's not I'm not to say that I don't like slow films but I thought at times it was certain sections of it were too slow and the main performance is, is superb and terrific but it's it's not one of the greatest films ever and I'm sure James is not shouting at me now for <laughs> now I I do see what you're saying I and I, I, I I do see where those where those criticisms might come from. It's just I personally don't see them as failures of the film. Um, I, I do think Kubrick was never uh, an actor's director, and you know, by kind of apparently, Paddy Considine uh, had is a real actor's director, from what I hear um, from interviews with Eddie Marsden and uh, Olivia Coleman. Um, Kubrick yeah, there's was one about... about about that, by the way. Constantine, apparently, there's, there's one scene where they're in a pub. Yeah. And someone just asks him, are you all right? And he says, it's, it's actually Constantine off screen, just saying it because he was so drawn in by the performance yeah. from, from Mullen that he, he just felt obliged to just, you know, join in. Cause he was, wow. You know, yeah. So, That's really I, interesting. I, I do, I, I have got Tyrannosaur basically ready to watch this week. A few people have told me I should watch it and I've, yeah, you, know, you what you've said has not put me off of it by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, just about Clockwork Orange, I do think that um, the way it is shot is vital to giving you that sympathy for Alex because there's no way on earth you should have any sympathy for this nasty little degenerate, basically. Uh, and we should yeah. feel like... Um, I don't think I did, though. That, I think that might be the problem. That might be... Yeah, maybe, maybe that is because I do end up... I, I ended up, he's, he's a massive anti-hero, obviously, 
Uh, and I did end up feeling the sympathy for him, despite the fact that, you know, we see what he does right at the beginning of the film. Uh, and I think that the stylized violence is important for that, because if it was, for example, like I've heard about Tyrannosaur or like I've seen in Drive recently or something like, you know, if it was yeah. really hardcore violence that we were, as a viewer, drawn into, we, we, we wouldn't be able to feel that sympathy for him. Um, and that again, you know, you've got the almost comical elements when he's singing, singing in the rain as he's beating up the household and things like that. They're, they are there to alienate us from the violence almost so that later on when his free will is essentially taken from him, we think it, and it's almost like the argument against capital punishment. So the fact is what happens to him is completely dehumanizing and it becomes a moral question of, um, does he deserve to be made less than a human? Um, and without this stylized violence, without the music, without his narration as well, I think, which also kind of tries to draw you in. I, I don't think it works without that, but obviously it won't work anyway for some people. It obviously didn't work in that sense for you because you still didn't feel any sympathy for him. And that, that, that's probably a bit healthier than that position I where I end up feeling bad for him. Don't get me wrong, I felt a bit bad for him at times. Yeah. And there's well, the scene I where never felt old and things like that. And I, I actually, maybe I, maybe I'm the one with the issue then in that case. I don't know. But, um, I think, I, I think Kubrick was trying to make you empathize with that. Mm. Obviously the philosophical debate that arises from, without wanting to give too much away from his treatment, mm. so to speak. That is a really interesting debate and the whole thing about behaviorism and behavioral psychology. Yeah. And, and it asks really important questions. Yeah. But, at the same time, I couldn't ever empathise fully with the character because he was just such a sociopathic shit, basically. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Have you read the book, book Jerry? No, I haven't. I, mean, I'm, I was trying to put off watching it until I'd read the book. Yeah. Read the book. Could, I think could, I might have to read it. it. It might be something that the two of them work together because it is a brilliant adaptation of the book and the way uh, i think owen mentioned this on a podcast recently when i talked about clockwork orange the way it actually transfers the language of the book is brilliant because the book when you read the book you think well there's no way on earth you could film this and i i, I honestly believe that kubrick did i can't believe there could be a better adaptation of the book and maybe I maybe a lot of it comes from the source material. I don't know, but well, that's just my views anyway. Oh, and I how agree with it. I was just going to say as well, just on a Clockwork Orange. I think it's one of those films that definitely benefits from a rewatch. Because the first yes. time I saw it, I felt similar to Jerry. I thought, mm. okay, it's quite good, but I'm not really understanding why it's so adored by people. But at, you know, the second or third time you watched it, you really do think mm. it's a fantastic film. So I'd suggest giving yeah. it another go in perhaps, you know, a few months. Or in a few years, yeah. Uh, just to show my age, the first time I watched it was on a black and white imported video because it was still banned in this country when I watched yeah. it the first time. It was banned. That's a white You are night. so old. I'm so old. I know, I watched it on VHS. <laughs> Can you believe it, Steve? <laughs> well, Owen, how many people died in the other film you want to review this week? <laughs> uh, quite a lot, actually. I watched... I, I, I've watched less films this week than I have in previous weeks. So I've only got a few to choose from. But I haven't got a bad one to talk about. 
but I've got quite a few good ones. So I've narrowed it down. They're, they're both two ugly films, but ugly in different ways. So the first one I want to talk about, where lots of people died in lots of gory ways, is Brain Dead, uh, which is also known as Dead Alive. It's Peter Jackson's, uh, it's not his first film, but it's one of his first few films that he made back in New Zealand on a very small budget. Basically, it's the story of this Sumatran rat monkey from Skull Island, which is a nod to the old King Kong films. It's where King Kong was found, Skull Island. Mm -hmm. But it comes back um, to New Zealand, it's in a zoo. Basically, if it bites you, if it bites you, you turn into a zombie, um, and it happens to bite the protagonist uh, Lionel's mom, and she turns into a zombie. And he tries to hide her in his house, and obviously it doesn't go to plan. She starts biting other people. The people turn into zombies, or the people that visit the house turn into zombies, and it just gets out of hand until near the end of the film. There's a big house party, and he's trying to hide all these zombies in the basement. Why? But they come out and attack everyone. Why is he hosting a house party with? Oh, that's a big plot hole there, but I mean... It, well, it, it, it does make sense in the story. I can't really say why he has this house party. It's not... By the time that there's this party, it's not really his house. It's his uncle's. But I can't really explain the story that leads up to that until... Um, well, without spoiling the plot, really. So I'm not going to say how that happens. It just does, and uh, it, yeah. it does make sense. I, I remember watching this film 10 years ago or something, but I was very drunk at the time. It was one of those kind of studenty nights. And it was, it, it, was in, film it was in black and white, and you had one telly where the sound didn't work and one <laughs> we, telly we where the picture the didn't work. Nickelodeon. And, yeah. <laughs> it was even before that fascial sketch where the guy went, but that was very, very yeah. drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I remember it being gory yeah. as. I'm, fo I'm just, followed I'm it up saying, by watching a double bill of Desmond's. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I've seen this film, and I'm a bit ashamed to admit that because it's it's like a classic. But it, you know, it's fantastic. It was it, I enjoyed it as much now, I think, as I've been watching it for the first time because it's just brilliant. It's just absolutely over the top gore and action, and I have never seen so much fake blood in a film. I mean, you think of you're The Shining. A lot of zombie films, yeah, that's quite impressive cheap, actually. <laughs> well, you know, even in The Shining, where the lifts open and the blood all pours out, I think they probably get through about three or four times as much as that blood in the whole film. It's oh. incredible. The ending is just, my God, it's disturbing and disgusting. Um, I, you know, it's one of those films, I, I was both sickened by it, but loved it at the same time. It's just <laughs> fantastic. The dialogue in it is amazing. Um, there's this vicar who fights the zombies and says, stand back, this calls for divine intervention. It is probably that very latest film, I think. Well, very dark, sick, twisted humour, but it was, uh, it was my kind of film, I think. But I really enjoyed it. And, um, I, yeah, it's fantastic. And if, even if you don't like zombie films, but you're a fan of the horror film genre in particular, it's worth a watch because, uh, I mean, actually, if you like Evil Dead, you will like Brain yeah. Dead because it's just it's got that same humour and horror elements to it that the Evil Dead has. Oh, Jerry! Uh, no, I was gonna say Jerry's been quiet for far too long now, so we best move on to what he's been watching. We've already done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I've only done one. I know it's late, Steve. But well, come on, it's not that late. Yeah. <laughs> We're as professional as ever. 
<laughs> Who hasn't gone? So I've gone you. One. Owen needs to do a second one. Yeah. I mean, it's not important. All these northern accents are just merging into one. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, what else have you been watching? Over there from the Midlands. <laughs> the Midlands. <laughs> Sorry, Steve, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Go on, then. Uh, <laughs> it's an old, very old film from 1923, I think. But I wanted to talk about it because my first film was an ugly film, as I said, and this one, I think, fits into the same um, category. Uh, it's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I'm sure we all know the story of Esmeralda, who's a gypsy's daughter, raised by Guardian in the slums, becomes um, connected to this uh, uh, aristocrat, and forms a relationship, father doesn't like it, etc., etc. It's actually the first telling of the story, or the complete story, that I've ever seen or read. I've never read the book, and I haven't watched the Disney film or any of the other numerous interpretations. Um, so it's quite a, a a new story to me, really. But uh, yeah, it was another another good film. It was both disturbing and horrible, um, like Brain Dead, but in a very different different way. Lon Chaney, who plays Quasimodo, is absolutely fantastic in it. He's just re- he's just perfect for, for for playing that role. He the, the mannerisms that he's got with Quasimodo, uh, they're, they're very disgusting. And you know, gross, and that's what he's what he's going for, and he does it really well. Um, and it is it is very much like a horror film. Um, it, I mean, it's very dated horror film, as you'd expect for something that's about ninety years old. Um, but it's got that sort of powerful um, draw to it, with particularly as I say with Lon Chaney's. Um, uh, and it's probably more gruesome than a lot of modern horror films. There's, there's scenes in it where um, where Quasimodo and Esmeralda are on top of this cathedral of Notre Dame, obviously, and they're trying to fend off these people trying to break into the cathedral. And he's throwing, like, big boulders on top of them and pouring, like, hot water or hot oil on top of them. It's really quite gruesome. Um, It's something you don't expect to see quite so much in, in, in such an old film. You know, the stabbings, and you see someone stabbing someone, and it's it's... Yeah, it's quite quite powerful. Um, but you know, the, 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 there were a few flaws to the film. There were there's things that you can imagine if a modern director had his hands on that film, he would have cut out a lot of those scenes. I mean, there's, there's stuff that happens with Esmeralda's mom, which is just absolutely pointless. It adds nothing to the story. It do, all it does is just waste time. Um, yeah, it, it's just really pointless. So I, the, there are definitely flaws to it. But it looks really good. It's got a good story, obviously. It's got a good story. Um, and it's got great performances in it. So I was really um, uh, pleased I decided to watch that film. I actually watched it on my phone because it's uh, the film's on YouTube and I've got an app on my phone, which means I can watch YouTube films when I'm not online, which is a bit naughty, I know. But um, the bloke who was sitting next to me when I was watching it, uh, on the bus was trying to read a newspaper and he kept sort of peering over and looking at my phone and watching the film with me so I thought well, that's quite a good draw if someone can't actually hear any of the music that goes along with it um, but he's still trying to watch the film with me I thought you know that's quite a positive thing to say about it so it attracted people's attention I think so it was a really good film I really liked it Was it controversial at the time? You know how you're saying it's like quite gory even by today's standards well not gory yeah. but quite gruesome was it, it was. was it really controversial? Because obviously, 1923, you'd imagine censorship was a bit 
stronger it, than it is now. I think, yeah, it, 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 it was. And like I say, it was one of the first sort of horror films and it got that reputation of being this, this controversial film, as well as um, a film that followed it shortly after, which was uh, Phantom of the Opera. They both got this reputation as being very early. Um, you know, they were, they were pre-James Whale horror films, for example, you know, pre-Hollywood um, horror films. And they, they were really sort of what kick-started that. I think people saw them and were quite horrified by what was on screen. So they, had, they did have that same, same reputation and they were, they were quite controversial at the time. But both, I think, were recognised as being good films, which they are. They're both good. They're that is everyone now, Steve. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> everyone done. Brilliant. Right, that's it for the good, the bad and the ugly then. So after the break, we'll be back with Triple Bill and our favourite documentaries. The NFL critic Triple Bill, our favourite three documentaries. Uh, who would like to get things going? <laughs> no one. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I will. Sod it. Um, yeah. Hello. Um, right. Yeah. My my three documentaries again. Oh, documentaries. I've, I've started watching loads of them recently, simply because of Netflix. And uh, anyone who has got Netflix, I just want to say, have a look through that documentary section. There's some fantastic ones there. I noticed one the other day about the the font Helvetica. Ninety minutes about a font. Can't wait to watch that. Anyway, no, I saw, um, I saw that at university for some reason, and no, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm being serious. Ninety minutes about a freaking font. What? It, what? Yeah, that it's just it's it's not worth it. Okay, all right. Well, hopefully these three are. Anyway, um, my first choice, I, I'm struggling to look through my notes. I think I may have mentioned it on a podcast before. So I'm going to start off with that. It's a film called Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toy Bee Tiles. It's available on Netflix, uh, definitely the US version anyway. Um, it came out in 2011, directed by John Foy. Basically, there's these tiles all over America, 20 US cities, in four South American capitals, and they're just embossed in linoleum onto tarmac and pavements, and they say, Toynbee idea in Kubrick's 2001, resurrect dead on planet Jupiter, or kind of variations on those words. And um, this documentary is just a basic whodunit, and it is a group of people who uh, live in Philadelphia, where they first appeared, led by Justin Durr, who um, decide to try and track down where these where these tiles have come from? They've all found them individually and come together as a group. Uh, I just love this documentary because it gives you a, a who done it over a real genuine mystery, and you get drawn in. And there's a lot of counterculture um, uh, use of CB radio, and clearly whoever's putting these down is a paranoid, delusional maniac. Uh, and it goes into a lot more detail about the kind of broadcast. They were driving around with a car with a CB radio, hijacking people's televisions as they drove past. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I won't go too much into it, but they do, t- they do kind of maybe track down someone, maybe track down someone else. And it, it 
in the end gets left quite open-ended, but it's a brilliant documentary, a fantastic story about something I'd never heard of before I'd seen it, and that was one of my my criteria for a good, good documentary, is that I felt like I'd learned something that I didn't really know before. So, yeah, I, I, yeah quite quickly on that one, because I, I do think I've mentioned it on here before, Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. Um, my second choice... Uh, and I've got a feeling there may there, there's a chance there's crossover here, uh, and I know there's definitely crossover with some people on the forum as well. But my second choice is Senna uh, from 2010. Uh, it's just such a brilliant, brilliant film. I'm not a huge fan of Formula One. I watched it a bit when I was growing up. I haven't watched it for years, to be honest. But I do remember Senna. Um, but I don't. I didn't really know too much about the story. I mean, it's fantastic. One of the great things about this documentary, actually, is it do, it only uses archive footage, uh, which is so rare these days. It's got a bit of added voiceover throughout the documentary, but all of the footage is taken completely from interviews with Senna uh, and people around Senna, and also just the, the race. Uh, the racing footage and things like that opens at uh, Monaco, which was Senna's sixth ever Formula One race, um, where he puts in this stunning performance. It starts to rain, and he's coming through the pack, and he's he's going three seconds a lap faster than Alain Prost ahead of him. But then the race gets called off just as he's starting to attack Prost, and it, it that sets up the the conflict for this documentary is basically all sports need great rivalries. Um, and this is one of sport's greatest rivalries, is Senna versus Prost. Two totally different characters, and then they end up driving for the same team. Uh, What I really loved about it was it made uh, Formula One look far more cool and dangerous than it does these days. Looking back at the old footage, those cars just seemed like they could kill anyone at any point. And then knowing what happened to Senna, it's got that kind of through the whole thing. The fact that you know how it ends would quite often ruin a documentary uh, or a film. But in this sense, it it's kind of the fact that you know that it adds a different element to the film. Uh, and you, you get to, you also get some nostalgia there. You get to hear Murray Walker again. It's absolutely fantastic. You get to see some brilliant, brilliant racing. Um, but in the end, you're just left with this, feeling of a driver who essentially just ran out of luck um and apparently you know the piece from his car that essentially killed him if it had been six inches one way or the other he would have survived and carried on being the fantastic racing driver he was but it i don't believe in destiny but it almost felt like um his life was destined to end that way i don't know if any of you have seen it no it's one of those that i keep seeing and everyone has, has talked about it and it's one of those that some of us that I keep meaning to see and never quite get around to. But I, I have a quick question, by the way. Yeah. Is it is it mainly race footage, or is a lot of it sort of like behind the scenes, you know, in the pit lane? There's, there's a lot of behind the scenes, actually. There's some really fascinating behind the scenes footage of pre-race drivers' meetings. Because um, there's one race, one year, where um, Prost basically forced Senna out of the race. He crashed into Senna because Prost just had to make sure that Senna didn't finish that race and Prost would win the title. And he did that. Um, 
and then there's a meeting the following year at the same venue and Senna walks out of that meeting saying that he got treated like absolute crap last time. And it's really fascinating. There is a lot of stuff like that that you have never seen on television at all. Um, and also there's this great um, interview, Selena Scott standing in for Wogan on The Wogan Show, interviewing Alan Prostny, massively flirting with her and stuff. It's just re- it, it does take you really behind the scenes of the drivers and I'd say it's probably about 25 to 30% actual racing footage and the rest of it is behind the scenes footage building up these two colossus uh, colossi of the sport who are kind of inevitably going to just crash headlong into each other you know on a in a physical way and also in a metaphorical way yeah, no, that, I was really surprised by how much behind-the-scenes archive footage there was. I don't know where it's been sitting all this time, because uh, there's some footage that you think would never have been like filmed for being used at any point, but it obviously was being. Um, but yeah, the, the director, the editor's done a fantastic job putting together that from what must be thousands of hours' worth of footage. Um, and yeah, uh, I've just gone to my last one then. My last one is Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Uh, the Verite concert film by D.A. Pennebaker of David Bowie's historic July 3rd, 1973 gig at Smith Odeon. The last ever gig of Ziggy Stardust. In fact, at the very end, he says it's the last gig they'll ever do. He was referring to his character of Ziggy Stardust. But watching it, you feel at the time and you see the fans and think, God, they think David Bowie's going to finish. And it's brilliant because it, it just really brings back a time when the world's biggest stars, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. He was playing still a relatively intimate, intimate, proper gig venue, which is fantastic because you see these days, you know, no marks like Jesse J and Ollie Murs selling out things like the NEC. It really upsets me that these days you don't even need to be talented to sell out an arena. Whereas back then, the biggest stars in the world were playing right in front of you, 10 feet in front of you, absolutely fantastic, no gimmicks, just performance. And again, this isn't just gig footage, Uh, there's some really, really interesting, it's intercut with interesting behind-the-scenes footage, you can hear Mick Ronson's guitar in the background as David Bowie's getting it, you know, having a cigarette, getting into another costume ready, it's... It really, really is, in my opinion, one of, it is the finest concert film I've ever seen, mainly because it's one of the best set lists I've ever seen committed to tape uh, from one of the most influential. He might not have sold the most records, he might not have sold more records than the Beatles and Elvis Presley, but to, even today he's still one of the most influential musicians ever. Um, and watching this, you can see why. So, yeah, I cannot recommend Ziggy Stardust highly enough either. Okay, so who will take up the baton then for the next lot their triple bill. And does anyone have any crossover with James? No, no crossover. I, I will take up the, the inspirational mantle that you've just uh, handed out there. <laughs> um, one of mine, actually, as James was saying about Netflix, uh, particularly the US version, if you can say if, if you look online, you'll, you'll be able to find information yeah. on how easy it is to get the US Netflix. Uh, one of mine comes up there as well, so I'll start with that one for me as well. Um, it's Fairly recent and, and, to be honest, quite unknown, what I would never have come up with one who sat there on Netflix. Um, it's from 2010. It's called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. Um, and basically, it uh, follows the story, initially at least, of a guy called Joe Cross, um, who's, you know, 
he's he's about he's about hundred pounds overweight. Uh, he's having to take these drugs for this weird, rare autoimmunodeficiency condition thing that he has, um, and he's pretty sick and feeling unhealthy and having to take drugs every day. I think I think more than the the weight, the drugs are the main issue for him. He, he just hates having to take medication and knowing that he will have to take this for the rest of his life every single day. Um, and you know, one morning he, he he has this moment where he wakes up and he looks at himself in the mirror, and he's you know he's three hundred and something pounds, and he's he's not like he he, he should have been, uh, and he thinks, God, I need to sort this out, and he sort of decides to really defy conventional medicine and and the way doctors would generally prescribe things like this. Obviously, he's being prescribed drugs, uh, and because of that none of that's working, he decides to do a quite extreme solution, which is. For the next two months or 60 days, he eats nothing but juiced vegetables. So he gets a load of vegetables, sticks them in a juicer, drinks it, does that like four times a day or three times a day. Um, and that's all he eats, which obviously is quite an extreme way to do things. And my initial reaction was, well, it's just one of these weird extreme diet things that's going to be a bit crazy. Actually, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean... As he's taken this, these 60 days, he, he combines this with the journey from coast to coast of America. So he starts in New York and he's interviewing lots of just, you know, everyday people and the odd doctor and, you know, dietitian and things about American attitudes to food and, and modern, you know, modern culture and how it shapes the way we eat and weight and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's sort of a journey for him and a physical journey as well, meeting new people. And one of these people that he meets at a truck stop is a, is a even more overweight guy um, who happens to have the same very rare, unusual uh, autoimmune disease that he has. And he, you know, he's basically travelling around with a fucking juicer in the back of his car trying to convince people to have this weird vegetable juice and trying to convert them, which is a bit preachy, but he's, he's Australian, so it's kind of not as preachy and American as, as it might have been in other hands. Uh, and this guy, anyway, is called Phil, um, gets in touch with him a few weeks later, realises that, you know, he really needs to change, and he, he's been thinking about what, what Joe's said to him. So then, from then on, this is probably about halfway through the, the, the film, then we suddenly jump and follow Phil and his journey, and he goes off and sort of goes away from his normal life, and goes to a bit of a, bit of a retreat in a nice place, and um, does the, the, juice, the juice fast for 60 days. Uh, and loses loads of weight and feels really healthy. And, and amazingly enough, not spoiling much to say, both of them managed to, to get rid of this condition. Um, and it's, you know, it's an interesting look at really why we try and mask certain things when actually, if we pay attention to what our bodies really need, maybe some of the some of the problems that we suffer might be resolved. But overall, it's just as a personal, you know, human interest journey, these two guys go on. It's really interesting. They're they're engaging. They're they're quite funny at times. Both of them are really likable people, and you know you sort of want to you want to know what happens. And you're interested in them, so you you learn something. I mean, he doesn't advocate it as a long term solution. He just advocates it as a you know fix your quick fix for your health kind of solution. So it's not too crazy. You can't say that I really want to live off juiced vegetables though. It's just fucking dirt. So so it's the it's a kind of reverse supersize me. Yeah, in a way. Or the, or, the pre- or the premises, at least. It's interesting, because if I'd, if I'd read that description, 
But yeah, if I'd read you know, a quick summary of that, I'd think sounds like a Channel Four documentary or something like you know, like embarrassing bodies or something like that. But you've made it sound really interesting. My second choice, I'll go on to that one now, is sort of a similar field, um, but not. This is another relatively unknown one. This one's called Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which is, uh, without wanting to sound too controversial, um, it's a documentary about steroids and trying to sort of uncover myths about steroids. And it's made by a guy called Chris Bell. Um, and he is one of three brothers. And his other two brothers both take steroids and he, he's never taken steroids. And he's trying to understand why they took steroids. And, and interestingly, it starts off with sort of examination of the 80s action heroes that, you know, I'm sure... Uh, a lot of listeners will have will have grown up sort of idolizing, you know, Arnie Stallone, uh, you know, the likes of Hulk Hogan and WWF wrestlers, all that kind of culture. Um, and you know how when you when he was a kid, he thought, oh, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to look like. I want to be, you know, big huge action hero. And then obviously it turns out that actually it wasn't like like Hulk Hogan said. He wasn't just eat, eating his uh, his vitamins and taking his prayer and, and saying his prayers. He, he was taking stuff. So it's it's about sort of looking at the American dream and what sort of American culture promotes and the, the ideals that it puts forward and then the sort of dark reality that's behind that. And, and it has a lot of parallels to a lot of the stuff that, that's said in, in film and in, in the media about, you know, what lies underneath the representation that, we, that, that we're given of society and, and maybe how a lot of it's not the truth. You know, you can apply it to with Photoshop and the it's all that kind of stuff. But he manages to take a quite level view on the whole subject, and he sort of avoids the sensationalism that the media often do, and he talks to all kinds of people, you know, people who work in Olympic-level Olympic drug testing, all that kind of thing. Um, and he looks at the positives and the negatives, and the, sort of tries to debunk a few of the myths, and, and he also has a bit of a personal journey throughout the whole thing, as well as, as taking the more objective side, because he's He's dealing with his brothers, and one of his brothers is a sort of failed professional wrestler. He had a couple of years in WWF in the early 90s, and he is a really messed up guy. You know, he has mental health problems because he can't deal with not making it, not being famous, and he can't deal with his own failure. So he is really interested, and that comes through in the sort of relationship between the family and the brothers. Um, and he even branches out, looks at sort of the food supplement industry, the illusions they create, some really interesting stuff about that, about before and after shots, um, talking to models who, you know, are promoting something, but actually they're all on steroids anyway. Um, it's just really interesting all the way, and it's, it, one of the more poignant things about it, I knew going into this film, that his older brother, who's the one with the mental health issues, uh, actually died because he, he, he killed himself because he, he couldn't deal with, you know, his own issues that had arisen from his the way he defined his self-worth and that kind of thing and and in the film he does try and move away and, and sort of start again and make a go of his career and it's very sad all the way through you know his relationship with his brothers and his relationship with his family um but that is also you know not that the only focus you get a lot of information and a lot of stuff that that maybe you wouldn't get in the media there's no sense of sensationalism or anything like that it's just really interesting. I learned loads of stuff, which, as James says, is what I what I want from a documentary. Is I want to learn things. I want to understand sort of the world that certain people live in. I maybe didn't understand before, and I want to be interested in the people who who are involved in the documentary first and foremost. I mean, I, I don't want to watch something about people I don't care about, to be honest. So, mm. 
people in this in this are, are, are definitely people you end up caring about. So it's a lot more than it seems on the surface. It's not just about you know steroids are they good or bad. It's it's well worth a watch. It's not it's not very popular, mm. but it's, it's worth a watch. Um, a more popular one, which is my final choice. Um, I think this is probably going to be the one that most people will know out of my three. Um, I'm trying to avoid going for sort of more famous ones because of that, because I wanted to try and sort of promote ones that, that maybe people haven't seen. So I avoided Man on Wire, which is excellent. Mm, yeah. Um, and I went for Tyson, which is a 2008 documentary, obviously examining Mike Tyson, global boxing superstar. And he's a very controversial guy. Again, I, I realised I see Mike the complete meathead here talking about steroids <laughs> Mike Tyson, but um, please don't get that impression. Um, basically, it tries to understand Mike Tyson as a person and, and sort of look behind the controversies and sort of understand the world that he grew up in, the world that he, he lived in once he was famous, um, you know, what makes him tick, really, what his motivations are, what... Really, the whole thing is an attempt to understand what it is like to be Mike Tyson. And really, you will realise that it's not a very nice thing to be Mike Tyson. He's, he's a very sort of haunted guy. Um, it's a bit of an emotional journey. You know, Tyson breaks down a couple of times. Uh, you, you get a real sense for him in his life. and You know, the, the attempts he's making to rebuild certain things and, 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 you know, build bridges again with relationships that he's ruined. And he's, he's quite self-aware, which is surprising, really. And, it's not how he comes across in the media. He is a very self-aware guy. And he, he's, that's what makes him a bit sad as well is because he knows that he's fucked up a lot of things, really. Um, and I think a lot of people get, will get put off by the fact that it's Tyson and they, they have certain preconceptions about him. But this really is just... It's, at, at its heart, it's just a, a human interest story. It's, it's about one guy and understanding him. And he is a very difficult character and he's very complex and... You know, you, you, you don't like him, but you, you end up sort of understanding him even if you don't like him. I mean, I, I, I quite like him anyway as a boxer. Um, mm. but I understand a lot of people are really not a, a big fan of Mike Tyson for obvious reasons. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting way of making you look at him and sort of the whole situation that he, he has, he's had throughout his life in a different way and maybe not just making assumptions. In in terms of those obvious reasons, you meant you know the fact that he he served jail time for rape. Um, yeah. Does it does it skirt around those, or is it quite upfront and honest? Does no, it challenge I, him on that at all? Yeah, or? they they do sort of challenge him. I mean, you you don't know whether he's he's had to be pushed and probed for a long mm. time before. You know, you, you don't know with the editing, but he, he is sort of pushed to talk about the the dark times of his life, shall we say? And there's, there's been enough of them. Yeah, uh, there's plenty of material for him to cover there with, with Tyson, with the sort yeah. of dark aspects of his character, and he is quite frank about it. I mean, some of the stuff about his relationship with his kids, and you know, he's very regretful about how he sort of maybe didn't didn't do what he should have done for his kids and things like that, um, and how he's struggling now to to deal with the after effects of that and, and the, the damage that's had on on himself and on his relationship with his kids and and his kids and, and you know there is interesting things and they, they don't really shy away from them but at the same time I'm not sure how how readily he came out with that information if you know what yeah. I mean they could have spent a lot of time getting that out of him and editing it in a certain way to make him look more frank yeah I mean I'm quite well, we've talked about it before but I'm sort of quite cynical about the whole film anyway I mean you kind of have to 
take into consideration what was the purpose of her making that documentary. And it's at the heart of it. I think it is just so Tyson can rebrand himself in a way that he can make, sell, sell his own, you know, sell his image in a positive way. And, um, there was, there was stuff that I know you mentioned previously about how he cries in the documentary and stuff like that to me just comes across as a really, and perhaps it's just me being overly cynical, but it just seems like a, a very cheesy way or a very easy, I guess, way to, to try and win over an audience. And um, how much does it sort of play on that in the documentary, I guess, is my question. Um, I, I can understand what, you know, the, the concern. I think that, that was one that I had myself going in, is, is how, you know, sort of exploitative it might be and how maybe it's trying to paint a very sympathetic picture of a man who really isn't, you know, deserving of, of having a sympathetic picture painted on. And I wouldn't describe it sympathetic. The whole thing is just very sad. You, you end up feeling sorry for Tyson in a way that you just think, Jesus, it must just be shit being, being Mike Tyson because just, he just seems like a bit of a... It's a weird combination of he's, he knows he's a wanker. Do you know what I mean? He, I don't think it's, it's a cynical sort of exploitation, you know, making him cry, that kind of thing. But I can understand why you would have those concerns. Maybe maybe if you watched it, you might have a different interpretation of it, but that, that isn't my interpretation of it. But I think that there was certainly an argument that could be made if you went into it with that view. But I'd be interested to see if you watched it, if you still held that view again, or whether you thought it was genuine. That would be a real test for it, I think. Yeah, I have to, because I am one of these people that can't see him in a positive light. So <laughs> if the documentary can make me change my mind, then, then it must be a good documentary. I want to move on to my choices quickly, because obviously I didn't watch any films in this week, so I haven't got anything to review for part one. So you haven't heard none of my bullshit tones. Anyway, I won't bore all the listeners too long of mine, because two of them I've spoken about before on this podcast. The first one... Um, which will be third on my list, obviously, is, they're all sporting films. The first one is uh, Zidane, a 21st century portrait, which some people have said is just more of an art piece rather than a documentary, but it just basically follows Zinedine Zidane in a game from 2005 for Real Madrid against Villarreal. And it's 18, cam- no, 17 cameras, sorry, just following Zidane for a whole match, which might sound boring, but he does get sent off at the end as a result of a brawl. Um, but it's just, it's, it's following, I mean, if you're a football fan, which I know many of our listeners are, because we started off on a, a football forum. Um, but yeah, it's just following one of the greatest players, certainly of this generation, if not ever, around during a game. And you could use it for anything. It's just sort of a documentary or a piece of work, just, you know, following the, yeah, how beautiful football can be when it's played by somebody of his talent, or you could use it as a coaching manual of what you should be doing even when you don't have the ball. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I wanted to see it at the time and I never got round to it, but I, I was always just a little bit worried it was going to be a bit boring, I'll be honest. It's, it's, <laughs> if you like football as much as I do and, you know, yeah. and... I mean, some players, it's, you're not going to have John O'Shea, a 21st century portrait. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got, it's got to be, it's got to be a yeah. player like Zidane, who's not only, you know, a genuine one-off talent, but somebody who is an, you know, a character as well. I mean, you obviously know from his, yeah. his exploits in the 2006 World Cup final, got sent off 
the headbutting Matarazzi, you know, and looking into, you know, a bit of research into this documentary, a German filmmaker did the same um, with George Best, with less cameras, obviously, because it was a long time ago, but done the same idea with George Best, which I'm trying to dig out at the moment, just followed him for a game, just him and nothing else. It's just yeah. the idea of, you know, that kind of maverick player with such a, such a one-off talent and such a, a, yeah. a engaging and entertaining personality and interesting I mean, because Adelman, as well as being a good player, he was he was worth a red card or two. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, you know, he could do anything at any moment. Yeah, Balotelli's the one now who I mean, you can see is potentially world class, but is certifiably nuts. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you need, also I I I remember at the time seeing that the soundtrack was done by Mogwai. Yeah. Um, and and any football match which has got a soundtrack by Mogwai rather than Mark Lawrence and moaning <laughs> over the top of it is is a plus point for me as well. Um, and sticking with football, second choice is One Night in Turin, which I think might have been quite close to making James's list. Yeah, and I, I know I spoke about it quite recently. Yeah, mm, uh, coming up to the well, in the cut to the Euros, we spoke about it quite a bit. Yeah, I've watched it. Um, I won't talk about it too much, but basically he follows England in a 90, uh, World Cup Italian 90 match against Belgium. And just just the last time England were good, I think. I mean, in, in, looking into it, I know England got to the semi-final at Euro 96, but they were by and large lucky throughout most of it. And their big result against Holland came from the worst Holland team for years and they just in, not, in just in, in just one of their spells where they're all falling out and fighting each other yeah but, but yeah you know an excellent documentary just you know following the last good England team say for La Tournoi in 1997 and yeah. the final thing I mean, that is a great honour La Tournoi why did they ever get rid of that yeah, terrible idea. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, the final film in my list, one I spoke about before, one I've raved about before, is Freedom's Fury. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I implore everybody to see. And it tells a story of the 1956 Hungarian water polo team. Which doesn't sound like the most interesting uh, topic for a documentary. Um, especially when water polo seems to be one of them games that you just sort of are forced to play in some resort hotel somewhere when you're sat around by the pool. But yeah, it's uh, basically 1956 is the year of the Hungarian um, uprising and revolution where they, the Hungarian people rise up against the oppressive Soviet Union government in charge of their country. Um, the, you just, so the Hungarian team are um, in a training camp in the mountains and they can see sort of all the, the trouble going on below them. They move to Czechoslovakia so they can get away from all the trouble. End up um, going to Australia where the 1956 Olympics are without knowing too much about it um, until they get there and they find out what's happened. They end up playing the USSR, Soviet Union, um, in one of the games. They win 4-0, but it's known as the blood in the water match um, because of the injury that one of the young players, the star of the team, um, suffered from being just basically punched. Yeah, uh, Erwin Zadol, who was um, yeah punched by one of the Russian players and ended up bleeding. It was you know there's a lot of expatriate um, Hungarians in the crowd. Um, The 
world got on the Russians' back because it was such a violent game and they were just spitting on Russian players from the side of the pool that the police had to usher the crowd out with time left. Is there footage from the actual match then? Is there yeah. some decent footage? There's, there's, there's some reconstruction as well. Uh, <laughs> but I won't um, watch. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's, it's just... It's it's such a different it's such a different docu you know kind of documentary. It's one of those that um you know shows how sport what you know what sport can do for a country to build a country you know, how you can use sport for so many things and how sport can be used to give you know a country a, a feel good factor when it needs it. I mean Hungary not only hammered the Soviet Union four 0 but they actually won the gold medal. Yeah, um, um, don't let Seth Blatter watch this because he'll keep on giving the bloody World Cup score. Um, for a fact, Seth. Another, 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 just, <laughs> just a few little interesting bits of trivia about Freedom's Fury before I finish. Um, it's narrated by Mark Spitz, the American um, swimmer who won seven gold medals in one Olympics, because he was coached by Irvin Zadl, the, the player who was who was bleeding in the water in the Hungarian team. And the film was uh, co-produced or co-executively produced by Lucy Liu and Quentin Tarantino. Quickly, it, just, it doesn't just tell the story of this this water polo team and that one game. It's it's all about the um, uh, Hungarian uh, the uprising and you know what was you know one of the first uprisings against an oppressive communist Soviet government. Uh, that's my list done. So Owen. Yeah, okay. Um, first documentary I've chosen is quite well known, I think, actually. It's a documentary called The Aristocrats. So it's about the infamous aristocrats in-joke uh, between comedians, and it features interviews with uh, quite a lot of, I think it's over a hundred of these sort of big, well-known comedians. So it's got interviews with George Carlin in it, um, Billy Connolly, uh, Drew Carey, Robin Williams, Eddie Izzard. Uh, it's just it's just full of all these comedians. Uh, basically, what they do as part of their interview is they have to tell the aristocrats joke. And the aristocrats joke is this, um, like I say, some, it's a secret handshake between comedians, really. Uh, and they, everyone has their own unique way of telling the joke. The joke essentially is, um, the setup is that a, a guy goes to a talent agent and he says, I've got this, this fantastic show for you. The talent agent says, go on. And then, Basically, the comedian then starts giving these really, um, how do I say, it's improvised jokes about incest, about rape, about child molestation, basically the most offensive stuff that they can think of to try and outshock each other. Um, and then there's, there's a punchline to the joke, which is kind of, agent says what you call Zach, and the punchline is the aristocrat. So they all widely acknowledge that the joke itself is a terrible joke, um, but it's more, the documentary doesn't necessarily focus on just people telling a joke to be funny. It's, it's more about, um, about how offensiveness is uh, perceived by different people, particularly with comedians and how, for, for comedians, that they have a, a, an almost their own sense of humour, and it's about how far they will have to go um, not just how far they can go, but like I say, how far they have to go to make each other laugh. But how um, it, you know, to, to them, it's funny because they, they they've got no boundaries, or at least they're trying to smash through any 
dangerous that they think might be set up between them. But the documentary, as I say, it's really insightful. It, even this, it's it just interesting to see how comedians um, interact with each other behind the scenes. You know, you see, see them on panel shows a quite a lot, and, uh, and, and even sort of when they're on guests on, on talk shows and stuff, chat shows. They, they kind of present themselves in the, a, a, a particular way that they want to be seen uh, by an audience. Even on stage, I guess, is, is a way that they want to be seen. Whereas in this documentary, there's just something about it which it kind of feels a bit unique. You, you, you're getting something out of these comedians that you wouldn't have gotten um, by watching them on stage or, or seeing an interview with them on a Channel 4 um, you know, magazine program or something like that. So it, I thought it was really interesting. And um, it's uh, it, Stuart Lee uh, mentions he's the person who first brought my attention to the documentary actually with with his book, um, mm. which came out a couple years yeah. ago. I think. Yeah. How I spent my certain death. That one. Yeah, well, I think my it's still fate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that was the first introduction I got to the documentary where, where he says he, he stumbled across it at one of these comedy festivals and it, yeah, it, it changed changed his perception of comedy as well. So it's really yeah. interesting and it's had an effect on a lot of comedians um, and it's just really, it's, it's worth watching. It's on TV quite a lot. I think it's on Film 4 every, every yeah. month. Um, so if you see it on there, I, I definitely recommend either recording it or, or watching it whilst it's on because it's, um, it's fantastic. It is a really interesting film, definitely. And like you say, anyone who's, well, anyone who is a fan of Stuart Lee will be a fan of the, the structure and the construction of stand-up, almost yeah. certainly. And, and it is a really good kind of look at that. Cause you're right, you don't get to see behind the curtain very often yeah. when it comes to stand-up. And this is really, there is some absolutely horrible stuff in it. <laughs> um, uh, and even the comedians themselves will, will admit, well, it's not necessarily funny. I, it, it, it almost feels like the joke in itself is the equivalent of an opera singer going through their scales before a performance yeah. or something <laughs> like that. It is working on those improvisational uh, muscles and saying, right, okay, where can I go to shock an audience? Like, I don't necessarily want to go there, but where can I do, where can I, you know, I need to know I can go there if I need to. No, really, really interesting documentary. Oh, glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, like I say, I recommend it. It's re it is really interesting. Um, or at least I found it interesting anyway. Um, my second choice is, uh, perhaps, we'll see what you, what you think with, whether you guys agree, but I think it's um, a real documentary. But I've gone for Catfish, which is another quite well-known um, documentary. It was released in cinemas even, I think. Then comes up on TV quite a lot on sort of E4 and things like that. But it's basically... Um, marketed as a documentary that you can't talk about because if you talk about catfish you spoil catfish for everyone so it's really hard for me to talk about <laughs> to try and give it a, a good review but one of the things that people one of the, the faults i guess that people find in it is some people think it's not real um so there's a sort of doubt about how authentic it is as a documentary um Personally, I think it is real. It's not, it's hardly this outrageous story that it could only have been made up. Um, but I can see where people are coming from because of the way that it's shot, it's almost some of the scenes are uh, almost too, too good to be a documentary. Um, so 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's real. But I, it's also really interesting. It's played out more like a drama. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of got this narrative to it. And it's shot by these amateur documentary makers who um, actually think they do know how to use the cameras. They actually go on to make um, Paranormal Activity 3 because they do so okay. well. Yeah. But it's... Um, Sorry, go on, James. I personally, have, I personally haven't seen it. Um, okay. But I have heard that, yeah, you can't really know too much about it going in uh, kind of thing. And I have heard the controversy of, is it really? Is, um, which I think also got another one of my nine nearly shows, um, Exit Through the Gift Shop, the, the Banksy okay. documentary, which again is um, people go, well, actually, is that real? Is, you know, are people subverting or even just cheating? Um which is, which is an argument you could have with a lot of documentaries, really. You know, how structured, yeah. uh, how real are they? Uh, anyway, uh, but no, I, I've I've heard about Catfish, and I keep meaning to watch it. I just haven't got around to it. I I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. The, the way that the sort of story unfolds, it, it does play out like you're watching a, a drama rather than a documentary. Um, but they, you know, I've seen interviews with the um, the filmmakers, and they they all swear blind that it was uh, definitely a documentary, and they didn't fake any of it. But you do get the impression from watching it, perhaps maybe they're exaggerating slightly when they say it's all real. Some of it it kind of gives the impression it could have been reshot after the events have taken place. Like they've gone, oh, that was a good bit. A shame we didn't get the, the right footage for that. Oh, let's just reshoot it as if it was real. It kind of has that feel to it, but I think that the actual story itself is quite possibly real. I mean, they had, they reckon they had about 24 hours worth of footage and they had to condense it down into sort of 80, 90 minutes. Um, so I can understand people getting that impression, but I, I quite liked it. If you buy into it being a, a real documentary, I think you'll enjoy the drama of it as it unfolds. So, okay. I, yeah, I'd recommend it. And my final choice is, um, Although it has zombie in the title, I'm not just picking a zombie film for the sake of picking a zombie film. <laughs> it's called Zombie Girl the Movie. What it's about is essentially a documentary of a 12-year-old girl called Emily who decides that actually what she wants to do in life is to become a film director. And she decides the first thing that she's going to do is um, film a zombie film, a, a feature-length indie zombie film. And it follows Emily from the conception of her idea to um, going into to see sort of, uh, film studios and makeup people, um, all the way through to the actual first premiere screening of her film. And it covers all the anxieties that she has about whether anyone will turn up to see the film, whether anybody will like the film, all the things that any independent filmmaker, with, you know, regardless of whether they're a twelve-year-old girl or a fifty-year-old Italian. You know, it's all <laughs> it's all the same same issues that come up. They're getting actors to, to turn up on time, making sure all the extras that you need are there. It's it's more insightful as a documentary about indie filmmakers and how it's changed now. How it's now an industry where where a twelve year old girl can pick up a camera, you know, can get funding for a film and speak to friends and they can put out a film and you know it, it, it's not always been that way you know making sure you've got enough money for, for, for the film which itself is very expensive and 
you know, now, nowadays you can just pick up uh, almost an iPhone and just go out and, and record stuff, and you can make a film that way. Yeah. So it's, 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 it is an interesting um, insight um, into, into into filmmaking, and it's also, it does follow Emily, so you see her as um, her anguish as she's, you know, struggling to, to get the film done on time, and also around sort of her family. Yeah, I mean, it would be quite easy to assume that she's just got this really pushy mom or pushy dad who's just you know, living their dreams out vicariously for their, their daughter. But it's not, I mean, everyone in it is really genuine. They seem really nice and they are just really supportive parents. And so you don't, you don't get this horrible, uh, I hate these people, these, you know, they're really dragging the film down. It's not, it's, it's an easy film to watch, but about sort of this young ambitious girl and her dreams and how she's aspiring to be this this this, um, this filmmaker. The final film itself that she makes looks terrible. <laughs> it's this really <laughs> awful zombie film. But that's not the point. The point is that there's this girl and she's made out this 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 dream of hers to be a film director and she she pulls it off. However terrible the film itself looks or not, it, it, you know, it is a, an uplifting documentary. Um, and also really interesting to see if you're interested in um, making films at all. And it does come up on TV as well quite a lot, so I think three films that are quite easy to get hold of. Um, it comes up on Sky Arts every so often, so if you subscribe okay. to channel. I'll look out for that. That sounds really, that does sound really quite positive. I like, I like the sound of that. Like you say, yeah. she, get, she gets out there and she does. And you're right, um, just it, even in the last, three or four years, the way the industry has changed. Uh, I know the director of Old Boy is making a 30-minute film on an iPhone now. Um, uh, and there was a feature film out last year recorded on a Nokia N8. Uh, but yeah, it's, and it, it taking me back to, well, I was talking about Primer in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Yeah. They made that for seven grand, and almost the entire budget was spent on film stock. Uh uh, but you know, and so they had to scrape together seven grand. Whereas now he probably could have made that for a grand using well, digital yeah. technology. And it, it and it just, just you can make you don't it means now if you've got some talent, you could make a a decent feature film for for a grand, and that's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then like... you can distribute it online. Uh, yeah, it's it it film is going through the same. Um, process that music went through about five, mm. five, six years ago. Uh, and it's really, really exciting for anyone who wants to be involved in that. And this sounds like a fantastic story, you know, really inspiring story. It is, yeah. I, like I say, I definitely recommend it. And it's easy to get hold of if you've got subscribers. It's on there all the time. It might even be on Netflix, I think, actually. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, yeah, I'd recommend it. I think you'd enjoy it as well as, a, as an aspiring filmmaker yourself, James. I think you'd really uh, get some <laughs> Well, best wrap up part two now. Uh, James, quickly, what is the next week's triple bill? Uh, next week's triple bill is oh god, I've just I've got notes for absolutely everything apart from that. Hang on one second, <laughs> that's terrible, isn't it? I, I did not. Oh yeah, next week's triple bill is um, I'm quite excited about this um, remake remodel. Uh, all of us are going to pick three films or franchises that we think need to be remade, rebooted, um, basically because we're seeing Amazing Spider-Man this week. But the films that you want to remake or reboot, I want to hear who's directing it for you and who you're casting in those roles So that and what kind of direction you might take the film in. So that's what we're doing next week. We're getting creative. <laughs> 
for this week's uh, new release review, we went to see, or most of us went to see, Jerry's let off for being on crutches with one leg. Uh, went to see the thigh. I, I do have two legs. I would just like to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remove a leg. I just have a large wound and screws and stuff in my knee. Uh, the five-year work again. <laughs> <laughs> the five-year engagement starring Jason Segel and Emily Blunt. Um, so, James, do you want to tell everyone? Well, introduce the film to people. Okay, yeah, so it's uh, directed by Nicholas Stoller, written by Jason Siegel and Nicholas Stoller, who were the writing team behind the recently very much loved, uh, on this podcast, uh, Muppets movie. It's about uh, a couple, Tom and Violet, who get together, get engaged, but then life keeps getting in the way, and will they or won't they get married? That's the big, that's the big question that needs answering by this film. Also. Um, supporting cast of um people like uh chris pratt uh and alison brie but uh yeah let's come on to that anyway yes like i said at the, at the top of the podcast we won't be doing a spoiler alert because it basically follows the same basic outline of every romantic comedy of boy meets girl boy loses girl boy gets back together with girl so i mean i don't think i've spoiled the film for no. uh, anybody who can watch spoil, it. We won't just go out to spoil bits no, we won't, we won't tell you everything that happens in detail, yeah. but there's, you know, that's why we're not doing spoiler alert this week anyway. Um, yes, what was the three of us that saw the film anyway, what was our general opinions of it? Too um, much I'm, as expected, I thought, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably stand up for the genre of rom-com here. Okay. I've been having this conversation with a number of people on Twitter this week, a number of people who I've been talking to. Um, Basically, I think if you go and see a rom-com, if you go and see this film, you need to accept that there are some conventions to the rom-com genre that you need to buy into first. So you need to accept that there are conventions here. So you need to accept there's going to be a happy ending. You need to accept that some people... Um, it's not neo-realism. They're not going to be ultimately, it's not a Mike Lee film. Okay. Some people are going to have very hyper real things, uh, about their personality. But overall, okay. Um, my, my summary of how I felt was I felt this had some good jokes. I thought it had some charming central performances. And for what it was, which was a mass market romantic comedy, it was a lot better than a lot of the other ones you see in this area. There you go. Yeah, I mean, silence. <laughs> I, by and large, agree. It was it was a solid. If you're going to give a film a rating out of ten, which I don't like to do because it's quite subjective, and then are you, are you doing it out of ten for the genre or? For every yeah, film you've ever seen, yeah. but I mean, generally it was it was like a six out of ten. It was watchable without being brilliant, but it wasn't terrible. It was it was funny, but rarely laugh out loud funny. I mean, I was smiling at most of the jokes, but I wasn't laughing my head off at most of the jokes. Although there were a few that were quite funny. Oh uh, well, no, I was opposite of that. Really, I I'm I'm not. A fa- I'll come in and say I'm not a fan of the genre. As a whole, anyway. And to be a, a good rom-com, I think you have to have two main people in it who, um, a boy and a girl, or, you know, boy and a boy, I suppose, or a girl and a girl, doesn't really matter. 
two two people in a relationship who you genuinely like or enjoy watching, um, and, and you you can get something out of the fact that they're together. And if they're if they're in love and they're happy, or you know, or sad or whatever, you you kind of sympathise or empathise with them, and you you can feel that yourself. I didn't get that with either of the two two leads in this. You know, if I compare it to something, I, I don't watch a lot of rom-coms, but something like the, the British sitcom, sitcom Him and Her with Russell Tovey and Sarah Soleimani, they don't play likeable characters, but it's the fact that they've got this convincing uh, performance of a couple in love that sells the programme. With, with five-year engagement, I just felt like they were playing two characters in a relationship of a film of how a relationship is supposed to be in a Hollywood rom-com. They didn't get. They, I didn't get anything from their relationship that I, I couldn't have got from just imagining what any other relationship in any other rom com would have been like. Am I? I've explained that very well. <laughs> you, you've explained. No, I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, you have explained it well. I just happen to disagree. <laughs> Fair um, part of it. Part of it, I think, will be because simply because. Um, I think with any rom-com or any, you you bring some of your own personal baggage to it. Um, I, I I honestly think that you know love and relationships are just as valid um, a subject to make a film about because it's something that we all go through as human beings. We all want to be loved. We all want to have sex with people. That's just part of our DNA. That's how we're built. Um, my problem is with rom-coms is some of them are marketed purely. At some point, someone went, you know what, we should just market these rom-coms at women. Uh, and then they started writing it for what they thought women wanted, rather than saying, do you know what, let's just write a story of two people in love. I honestly think this is more the story of two people in love rather than what people would want to say. I think that Tom and Violet, the, the two main characters, in my opinion, they don't make any unbelievable life decisions until maybe later in the film, which is... It's a common issue with rom-coms that quite often the first half, um, nicely paced, lots of jokes, setting up the conflict is quite often better, more interesting than the bit where it kind of finally gets onto its rails and leads to its inevitable conclusion of them getting together. I've got a big issue with third acts in rom-coms anyway. Um, but I felt that this one, it, it did set up kind of believable real life problems. You know, they had, they had real people jobs rather than jokey jobs. Um, they, you know, they, they still allowed humour to exist in those environments. But um, I, I, Jason Siegel was as charming as uh, as he usually is. Now I know that you, Owen, you, we had this conversation before. You said mm-hmm. you don't, you didn't think you'd ever seen him in anything apart from one episode of How I Met Your Mother and a, a voice in Is it Despicable, Despicable Me? Despicable Me, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas I. I I like it, and I I really like him, but it's all it's, it's interesting actually. It goes on to this thing that I've noticed recently, where the sitcom has become almost equal to film. Do you remember back in the nineties when Friends was huge and everyone watched Friends? But then everyone got like really. There was always loads of hype whenever someone from Friends made a film. It was like it was really hyped. Like, Look, that's someone from Friends. And these days, sitcoms and people jump between the two a lot easier now, um, and what it does is it gives this kind of cinematic shorthand to the audience 
um, where you don't have to do so much setting up of the character. Now, some people might say that's lazy. Some people might say, actually, that's quite handy for me as a member of the... It's almost like a generic convention itself. The generic convention of Jason Segel is he's always a charming, slightly lovable, oafish character kind of thing. So you know what to expect with him. Um, Emily Blunt's character, I thought, hey, I was really pleased they just made her English. Um, rather than trying to give her an American accent or anything like that. Um, I, I honestly thought they were two real people. They were very Richard Curtis. I, 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 they were very middle-class American, um, which, again, is still a little bit of a problem we get with rom-coms. People seem to live in uh, houses and apartments that their salary shouldn't be able to afford and stuff like that. Yeah, um, can I jump in there? That is my one of my main... <laughs> <laughs> problems with rom-coms is how overwhelmingly middle class and fucking unrealistic yeah. they are like it's like yeah. this proper bubble rom-coms seem to exist in this this sort of hollywood americanized bubble of middle classness and even ones where brits get involved yeah you know fucking hugh grant is the most middle class man in the history of britain so you know every yeah. character in that is always in that sort of same social strata and it, it, and I think it a loses lot that, a lot of the realism a lot of that comes from the aspirational nature of it unfortunately um, and but, I think also it's it's escapism on, yeah. on the base of it the film is escapism isn't it yeah. and, and you mentioned that they're marketed towards women it's basically everything is really nice even when things aren't going well for the main characters like their relationship is falling apart There's, it's still this relatively nice situation that they're in they just yeah, decide to call it off and it, but it's escapism for the, for the audience you're, you're supposed to buy into it in the same way that when you know you go to watch a batman film you think that yeah. is really cool i wish i was driving that car kind of thing but you know, is, or, yeah. or a kid watches power rangers i wish i could ride that di- dinosaur whatever they did in power rangers you know it's kind of it is escapism so when 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 things aren't real i kind i can kind of understand or, or make exceptions for it in, in, in sort of rom-coms because I understand that. It's just that I, I didn't really... It, it's okay for it to be escapism, but it, it still needs some kind of real, um, tangible thing for, for the relationship for me. And I didn't, like I mentioned earlier, I, did, I didn't get any of that. It's okay for it to be escapism in the sense you watch it and you, you can imagine that it's all this is, oh, this is really nice, it's, it's ideal. But you've still got... I mean... Jason Segel, yeah, he was okay in it. You know, Emily Blunt, yeah, she was. She wasn't bad. Neither of them put in particularly bad performances. I just didn't like the writing between the characters. I think if it's been sold as being the reality of how a relationship between two people is, I I didn't buy into that. I didn't, didn't get that. So, oh, no, oh, it, no, maybe it was just me. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe you haven't got a heart. No. Just, yeah, my <laughs> black, my black heart, or my stone Your black zombie heart. Yeah. <laughs> On the, on that note, not, not the zombie note, on, on the note about um, the sort of believability of the relationship. Obviously, I haven't seen this one, but we've talked about 500 Days of Summer before, which I really liked, actually, because it's the only rom, well, rom-com film without following the sort of rom-com conventions and was very realistic and sort of a bit brutal at times in the sort of harsh way it showed that relationship. And it wasn't yeah. all perfect and idealised. And I liked it purely because it, it played with those conventions and sort of looks like it's yeah. boy girl, but then there's no happy ending. Uh, they make that clear from the outset. Yeah. And 
I know you were a bit unconvinced by it, James. Has anybody else seen 500 Days of Summer? No. No. Although uh, my favourite bits of, as I said at the time, my favourite bits of 500 Days of Summer were the very realistic. I think 500 Days of Summer's real strength was in showing the the negative aspects of a relationship. Bits I didn't like were when they were actually in love and she was being all quirky and Zuri Deschanel. Um, <laughs> they were the bits that really annoyed me, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. So maybe yeah. I've also got a black heart as well. I don't know. Um, no, I, I, can, I can understand that. She is very sort of twee. <laughs> Annoying at yeah. times, but the, the sure whole she's absolutely of, lovely. Um, yeah, sorry, so we, we, we're not going to go I, at I, you. I, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, yeah, wreck anyone's chances on the podcast again with Zoe now. Um, I think we've but, already wrecked those. Also. Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> but yeah, um, but the, no, no, I, I agree with you. Like I say, my problem there, I think, and I, I was having this conversation earlier with um, someone uh, about sitcoms and playing with the conventions because we were talking about oh no one's ever done really anything that plays with it massively in the same way that cabin in the woods or scream did with horror so we were we were spitballing having having a look at that um but yeah 500 days of summer did do that a bit but we were saying do you know what if you had a rom-com which didn't end up with them being having a happy ending i think you would feel unfulfilled by that and i think rom-com strength and also its weakness um is the fact that the end is predictable a bit like titanic or something like that um and my problem with the five-year engagement which i did i did enjoy the five-year engagement there were some great performances and then great writing in my opinion um but what happens is about an hour in you know how it's going to end and if they then take another hour to tie up that story that's too long it, um, it did it did start to drag on and i don't it did, didn't it? and this part of the film's been in in trailers so i mean it's not yeah it's not going to sort of spoil any of the film but the moment where violet gets shot in the leg with um uh what is it, a spear gun crossbow, with, yeah. crossbow which isn't which isn't an unfunny moment in the film itself yeah. but sort of for me that was the moment where the film started to drag on and i was sort of thinking and it yeah. started just plodding along at a slow pace yeah, wasn't it? It was, wasn't. It was just sort of like, can you finish now? And, there was yeah, that, that and, was it, it, and it didn't really get funny again until Jason Segel's character met with his parents for for lunch or brunch or whatever. And it was yeah. a, it was a good. I don't know how long it was because obviously I wasn't looking at my watch or whatever. It was about, but it was it was, it was about half hour. It was it was at least half an hour to forty five minutes I think where it really was dragging. And I thought, come yeah. on, just you know, ch- the joke. There wasn't didn't seem to be any jokes. No, um, and uh, like I said, until he until he met actually. his mum and dad at the restaurant again, and but I mean it it was a reasonably funny film. Like you said, most rom coms seem to be aimed at women, and this one seemed to be aimed across the board. I think you can Definitely. see that when you know Just Apatow is involved. He's obviously been in you know involved with things like Super Bad, which were which were more aimed at lads and men, I suppose. Yeah, and, and it's sort of. You know, has that involvement and the writing from Jason Segel, who's obviously a a man, sort of come yeah. come in come into this and sort of made it not it's not a rom com aimed at men, but it's a rom com that's more rounded yeah. in in terms um, of who it's being aimed at. I mean, you know, t- it's probably quite a, quite a stereotypical view, but if you're taking a girl out to a film and she wants to see a rom com, you're sort of like, oh, can't I see, watch something where something blows up, or you know, but and yeah. it, but 
You know what I mean? But if you went to see this one, you'd probably come out of it not being overly disappointed unless you're rowing with no soul and hate Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> that that has to be a positive step, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, and as much as you really might have disagreed now. Um, in the fact that you, you said, oh, this is written by men. Most bad, most bad rom-coms that are marketed badly at women are actually written by men, but they're written by like committees of men who go, this is what we want. At least with this, this has got a voice. This is, you know, this is Jason Siegel's voice. And at least it has been written he's, by someone who knows what he's doing and he's hasn't doing a tried, lot. To, tried to please women or tried to please. He's just gone, do you know what? This is a story that I want to tell. And you can, you can at least tell, I think there's at least a sense of this has a voice. It might not be a voice that you like. It might be a voice that you go, uh, but it's not been written by committee. And I think that's, that's one of the important aspects of it. My, my main issue with Judd Apatow is he has brought in this new wave of, um, kind of grown up rom-coms, which are a bit nearer the bone, which are aimed at both sexes, but he is also, the one who has made them too long. Uh, I remember watching the 40-year-old Virgin for the first time. That's nearly two hours long as well. He he seems to think that f- these films need to be uh, longer than they should be. When Harry Met Sally, for example, is probably the, the archetypal rom-com in terms of um, mainstream Hollywood rom-com, but still quite sharp. That's 90 minutes. It's perfectly paced. These films, they, they need to stop. They've got more good bar. They've got more false endings than Return of the King in a lot of these films. There is too much. Oh, is it going to end now? Oh, is it going to end now? Oh, right. Okay. Oh, no, we've got another obstacle in the way. Um, and in this film, the whole section where they're apart is actually the worst written part of the film. I thought the bit where they go off on their separate ways for a bit. Mm, that, um, that bit could have just been, it could have just been it, chopped. It obviously, just, yeah. It, a lot shorter. I mean, it's obviously part of the, the story, the plot, but I mean, yeah. it could have been a lot, lot shorter. Uh, yeah. But for all, for all the, you know, talking about the film we've done, we haven't really talked about the funny bits, which we probably should, because yeah. it's a comedy. Yeah. So. Um, but if you've I, seen I, the trailer, you've seen all the funny bits, because they're all in the trailer. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Mm. <laughs> 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 they are, they're, it, honestly, any of the bits that I thought were funny in the film, I've already seen in the trailer. Except maybe the, the, the bit with the Elmo and stuff. But... I, well, I, I'll be honest. I thought that I thought Risa fans was brilliant in it. I really enjoyed. I thought Risa fans. He did get more uh, Welsh as the film went on. He did, and, and all of a sudden, uh, and, and so, as soon as he sort of mentioned that, it, as soon as he sort of mentioned something about his family's farm in Wales, yeah. at first I thought he was just doing British accent. Then it turned definite Welsh. Yeah, and he plays somebody Welsh in every film I've seen him in. So is he going to be Welsh in Spider Man? Um, is he gonna I've be- heard a bit of his voice in Spider Man. There was a there was he definitely wasn't American. He doesn't do accents, does he? No, no, fair play. To but him. I just wanted, you know, he's very proud I, of his Welshness. Yeah, um, so I, I, I he does also- has a really, really strong Welsh accent. That yeah, never changes. <laughs> um, but talking about accents, actually, I thought Emily Blunt's sister, played by Alison Brie, did a really good job mm. of being English. Um, uh, that, I that, thought she had a really good accent. That, there, cu- and- that couple, I actually liked her and Chris Pratt, who, yeah. do, who seemed to, Chris Pratt, who seemed to be playing Sean William Scott. Yeah, well, actually, it, it was Chris Pratt basically playing Chris Pratt, um, his character Andy from Parks and Recreation. Um, which he's been doing brilliantly for four seasons there. It, and it's again, it's that cinematic shorthand. Um, 
he played exactly the same character as he does in Parks and Rec brilliantly. Um, Alison Brie played a very similar character, although English, to the character she plays in Community, and also in Mad Men, that kind of uptight um, younger woman, and Mindy Kaling, the um, the Indian girl on the um, the research group, played exactly the same character that she does in The Office um, as well. Was she involved um, in the writing at all? Because she's, she's done a fair bit of writing and producing she, and I, directing I think in The Office. She, yeah, because... She's and she's got a new sitcom starting in September because she's left the office to yeah. do a new sitcom in September. I think she was involved in her character's role because the, the other thing about this was there was a lot of improvisation. It was written by Jason Segel, but apparently um, the reason they had a lot of these sitcom stars in is so they could do a lot of improvisation around the work they were doing. So it wasn't very, it wasn't you know an absolute strict script. So her character's bits would have pretty much been down to her i'm pretty sure of that and she was really funny and i think that there were some funny situations um yeah i i I would disagree with owen when he says all the best bits were in the trailer because i laughed out loud a few times and it kept me smiling throughout most Mm, of the film i I think that's what i said at the beginning really it's a you're not laughing out loud throughout the film so it's not it can't be considered a great comedy whether a rom-com or not but you're certainly smiling throughout most of it, uh, the jokes are pretty consistently raising a smile, if you know, if not a laugh. And but it was just so slapstick. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think the slapstick was over. There was, there was a few bits of slapstick, but I didn't think there was too much. Yeah, because oh, obviously you need to see a few more rom coms in that case. Yeah. If you want to see <laughs> terrible amounts of slapstick, oh. yeah, that that's the other thing. I think you can't help but um, but compare this to it to, against type. You know, we can we can talk about it as a standalone film, but we also should say that compared to a lot of other rom coms, this had less of the terrible jokes and terrible slapstick. This was more nuanced as a rom com, um, and again, sticking within those, the fact that it has come out of the Hollywood system, it does have to stick to the conventions of romantic comedy. I think this does a good job within those confines. Um, yeah, if you don't like rom-com, you, you're not going to enjoy I, this. I didn't think it... You know, we know some rom-coms where they try and go too serious at some point. So they try and, mm-hmm. At some point, they try and stop being a comedy to try and move the plot and the story along and try and develop the characters a bit. I thought this didn't do that, which was good, because mm-hmm. then it stops being a rom-com yeah. and then just becomes a rom, and yeah. I want to go. I think there is a, a real lack of proper romantic films though nowadays. Like, mm, but, yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, there's, that, that, there's no one is going to make a film like that now. Oh yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between a romantic film, a love story, and a romantic comedy. But I think a lot of romantic comedies try and become a love story and a romantic film that take themselves too seriously when their market is a romantic comedy, and it makes the film and it makes the film terrible. Past. Or I at least ruins the film. Jerry's making there, though, in that, yeah, romance, general, like, just a great romance doesn't happen very often these days. On, I think that's a really good point. That I think, you, seriously, the last one that made waves was The Notebook, which yeah, is still real, terrible. sort of cheese on toast kind it's of. Absolutely. <laughs> and then she made another one of those films recently. Uh, uh, oh, uh, the God, yeah. yeah um, I, I watched that last week. Oh, you 
poor sod. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. Oh, really? But okay. Oh, again, right. Channing Tatum, you see. Channing Tatum is the surprise guy of the year for me. He's actually um, turning in some decent performances recently, which is, is amazing. Okay, yeah. Just as a little trailer here. Okay. He's really good in Magic Mike. I cannot wait for us to talk about it in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so, I saw Magic Mike earlier tonight. He and actually Matthew McConaughey um, talking about cheesy rom-com crap. Um, that <laughs> Matthew McConaughey is, is more guilty than anyone. Exactly. They're just churning out generic, bog-standard, terrible... On a woman. Yeah. Um, but um, it... Yeah, just to just to trail what we're going to talk about in a couple, we are going to review Magic Mike in a couple of weeks, and it does start the two actors who are have who are going to change their entire. Channing Tatum's one of them who all of a sudden can act and can be funny, and Matthew McConaughey who knew he had depth. Honestly, I, I'm very excited to talk about that film. Any, anyway, let's, um, round yeah. <laughs> well, just wrap up the five year engagement. I mean, there were some definite funny bits in it. Let's talk about some of those more, more specifically about ruining the film, I suppose. But yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I just think it had some. It did have some. I, I tell you what, actually, I did like the donut, um, the donut analogy. Uh, I like the engagement party where um, Chris Pratt's character sang that song, which was just yes, about his exes yeah. with a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've seen the joke of someone doing a PowerPoint presentation done a few times, but again, it was done with charm. Um, it, it, it was, it, it was fun. And also they clearly put that scene in so they could have a wedding type scene with mm. a best man speech and stuff without, so they could still leave the idea. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say whether or not they do, but they could still leave the idea of, is there or isn't going to be a wedding? Because guess what? We've done like the the jokey wedding bit now, um, which I, all of these films I seem like, to have. To have. Uh, we put it at the beginning. I like, um, I like the, the line in laws and things. I like the, the trailer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the line from um, her dad, which sounds like a typical wedding speech joke, but I've never heard it before. Somebody who's been to a lot more weddings than I have might have heard it, but where he said, uh, "Wedding, every wedding needs commitment," but then so does insanity. Yes, it's a nice little line. <laughs> yeah. It's probably a Groucho Marx not line originally or something like that. But yeah, it, it, it was funny and it had charm, um, in my opinion. It, it's definitely not a film that's going to convert anyone to liking this style of film. No, it's definitely, um, it's definitely not taken. It's not definitely yeah. not overtaken my two favourite rom-coms of Shaun of the Dead and Love Actually. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> is Shaun of the Dead a rom? It, it was. It was marketed. It was marketed. I've said this before on a podcast as a zom, a rom zomcom. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 is, a, it is a story of um, Sean trying to get his girlfriend Liz back. So yeah, there's, there's, no, it, it's got romantic elements to it, definitely. I, yeah. I, and and actually, if you watch Shaun of the Dead, you'll see it fits a lot of the genre conventions of romantic comedy as well as zombie films. And, it, um, and talking, so, talking about Sean the Dead has just reminded me of my second one for Triple Bill next week, but I won't ruin everyone. I'll keep everyone on tenterhooks. Right, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the other bit right. worth mentioning for, for five-year engagement, which was quite funny, was like Owen brought up earlier that the Elmo and Cookie Monster bit, where they're arguing, having to put on those voices for the kids. Yes, yeah. Usually, um, usually I wouldn't but, find that kind of thing funny. I don't know why, but I did. I 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's just getting more and more excruciating. I mean, yeah. I laugh. I did laugh out loud, but mostly because the row of five women sat behind me were in hysterics laughing at that, which just made me laugh even more. So, <laughs> it's a good film to watch with a group of people enjoying it. Yeah. So, you know, I might not have laughed quite so much, but I suppose the audience that it was aimed at seemed to love it. So, <laughs> so would you say it's one to go like sort of in a group setting or watch with, with a bunch of mates then rather than one on one with a girl? Owen, is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't think my mates would like it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I well, that's what I was thinking. A group of mates are in to watch it. But no, I see what your, your point is. I think it's one of those where if there are, uh, you know, the more other people are laughing at it, the more it's going to... Yeah, I think it needs a busy cinema, doesn't it? Right. It's one of those where you would but, enjoy it more if, if you were laughing along with other people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's not a, a romance, so you, it's not really something you could just bring a, you know, a girl around to watch with you or anything like that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more comedy than it is romance, I think. And it just wasn't my, my kind of comedy. Yeah. Well, I think that's all for this week's podcast. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening. Um, James, would you like to end off the pod by telling people what's up next week and where they can find everything? Yes, yeah. So, uh, next week we will be talking about The Amazing Spider-Man, um, the reboot, uh, directed by Mark Webber, starring Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. We'll also be going through remaking and remodeling and rebooting films for our triple bill. So we'll come up with those films, those franchises that we think need to be redone. And most importantly of all, we'll be saying how we do it as well. Uh, you can catch us on the website, failedcritics.com. You can tweet us at at failed critics or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash failed critic. Excellent. Well, yes, thanks for listening. And we'll be back same time next week. Melted my brain as well. But I, I, I really do think it, there's something in there. Uh, and I, I really want to watch it again now. So, so that's, that's the first film I saw. Um, and the other one I'm going to talk about, um, that I saw this week, I finally got around to watching 30 Minutes or Less, which I've been meaning to watch for a little while. I don't know if anyone knows about it. It's basically, it stars, um, it's directed by Ruben Fleischer, who did, um, Zombieland. Uh, I think it's his follow up film. Stars Jesse Eisenberg. And, um, it's also stars, um, this is where, I realised it's late and things like that. The guy from Eastbound and Down, Danny McBride, that's his name. Um, basically, the story is uh, a pizza delivery guy gets a bomb strapped to him by um, two kind of rednecks and gets told to rob a bank or they're going to blow him up. Um, it's, you know, screwball comedy type thing. Starts off with uh, The Hives, Tick, Tick, Boom, which I've always wanted to do in a film. So I, I liked that. That was very good. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, actually, the thing is, he plays like this really slacker pizza delivery guy who's got dreams and stuff like that. And he actually just seems like 
if Mark Zuckerberg had no ambition and stuff, because um, Social Network was the first thing I'd ever seen Jesse Eisenberg in. So everything I've seen him in since, he just seems like a Mark Zuckerberg, a failure Mark Zuckerberg, and he's ended up delivering pizzas, which gives it a kind of layer that I don't think the filmmakers intended. But um, yeah, I'll be honest, it's hardly very Hitchcock in its plotting. It's quite a fun film. It's got some good jokes. There's a really good joke about um, uh, his best mate as they're talking about bomb disposal and he says, oh, have you not seen The Hurt Locker? And he says that he's had it on Netflix on his table for the last three months and goes into this bit of a spiel about the fact that he doesn't know why he pays for Netflix. He's only had two DVDs from them in the last four months and they've just sat on his table. And I've very much been in that position before. It gets a bit weird, though, when you actually look into it. Apparently, it's not based on a true story, but something very, very similar happened in about 2002 and the guy died, okay? Um, and when you look into the real-life story that, well, Ruben Fleischer and the cast all said they had no idea about this true story, but the writers had a vague idea about it, but it's very, very similar. But in the true story, the guy died, and he may or may not have been on the plot, but didn't realise it was a real bomb or something. And once I started reading that, I, I, it did lead me into this moral question of whether or not this is actually... What, what, can I laugh at this now? Um it made me feel really uncomfortable that um, that this film was making light of some of an actual real situation here. Um, so I found that actually a little bit weird, and that kind of affected how I felt about it afterwards. It may well have affected the fact that it did absolutely nothing in the cinemas and everything like that. So yeah, it was it was reasonably it was funny. It had um uh, had some decent performances, but it was certainly nothing groundbreaking. I don't think it deserved raking over uh, quite a tragic account just for comedy purposes, basically. So, yeah, that that's my general thoughts on it. So that's my two. The other film I saw was Ides of March. I won't go into it. I'll just say Ides of March, that was pretty good. Anyone who likes a political drama and things like that, likes Ryan Gosling. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, half decent. There we go. So who wants to take the mantle now, then, for film reviewing? Go on, I'll, I'll go next. Go on, then. Got mine are, are not quite as... Um, actually, I'm going to seem like a bit of a psychopath now with my, my two choices, I've just realised. Film, one of, them's, one of them's good. One of them's absolutely outstanding. But the good one is maybe... I think I'm, I'm, I'm out on my own in thinking that it's only good. I think James is going to get annoyed at me for, uh, for going into this one. But I'll go for the, the excellent one first. We'll stick to the positives. Um, I watched Tyrannosaur, which is Paddy Considine's uh, debut as a director. Uh, it was out last year. Sort of, if you've seen any Paddy Considine film, you know he's in a lot of Shane Meadows stuff. Um, it's a similar kind of atmosphere and setting and theme, but it basically is an examination of sort of the rotten core of British society and sort of the lowlifes that are around but not, aren't necessarily just pure scumbags it's sort of exploring their characters and trying to understand the reasons why they act like they do and not just being some stereotypical you know view of council states or anything like that and it's a real distressing film I would say it's very violent very shocking really sort of from the first minute I mean I'm not spoiling anything the first minute is, is violent and quite shocking and horrible and I, I was watching it and I was thinking mm, I'm not sure I can uh deal with this if this is the first scene was uh was pretty extreme and pretty you know at the limits of what this i'm willing to to tolerate watching as, as 
as a form of entertainment. So it was quite impressive in the way that even though it was exceptionally violent and really shocking, it was used in a in a sort of careful way, if I can say careful. It was it was used where it was necessary and, and to shock, but without being, you know, excessive and without being something that was maybe just violence for the sake of entertaining the crowds and, and being violent and, and getting the teammates out Do you know what I mean? It was a very serious look at, at violence and how that affects people. Is it is um, it similar in tone to Dead Man's Shoes? In a way. But whereas Dead Man's Shoes is about like one man's vendetta kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this is more exploring relationships. There's two main characters in it. Um, there's Olivia Coleman, who is Sophie from Peep Show. I think that's where most people know her. That's that's how I saw her when I when I started watching this because she's Sophie from Peep Show. So you know, it, it took me a while to to remove that barrier because she's so familiar from that role to me. But she is absolutely unbelievably good in this film. She is breathtakingly good at what she does. She looks a bit different because she's got short hair now. So you know, she's not like she was in the earlier series of Peep Show. But she's so different to the character she's typically identified with. She plays um, a woman who volunteers in a, in a charity shop, a Christian charity shop. Um, and she comes into contact with uh, Peter Mullen's character, who is a sort of aging, violent, possibly alcoholic man with you know real demons haunting him. And he's really struggling to, to deal with the things that are haunting him and, and bringing his life down. And he... Um, you know, he, he's the one committing the violence at the start, really. And he happens to run into her shop and they, they sort of strike up a weird, un, unlikely, not even friendship at first. They start building a relationship, basically, and getting to know each other, but in a very uneasy way. Uh, and he, you know, assumes that she's posh and doesn't know anything like the hardships that he has. And it turns out that actually she's hiding her own struggles as well. And it, 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 he starts having to deal with that. And he's got lots of other things going on in his life. I'd say very violent at times and it's some of the scenes are just brutal and it's some of the most brutal cinema I've ever seen but afterwards it was just like wow I mean it's just it was just brilliant I mean I, I can't recommend highly enough don't watch it if you want to be cheered up and you know full of the joys of spring or anything like that but um, it's really really powerful the, the performance from Peter Mullen is outstanding um, Olivia Coleman's husband as well uh, is played by Eddie Marsan, who you may know from a, well, quite a lot of roles, actually. Um, he is Lestrade in the Sherlock Holmes films, the, the recent Sherlock Holmes films. Um, he is the, he's in The Illusionist. He's in Beef Vendetta. He's in, well, he's really recognisable, very English actor. I think he was in um, the likes of uh, Rockstock and those kind of films as well. He's, he's really sort of cockney typecast actor in a way he's, he's in Mission Impossible 3 as well if I remember rightly and he plays a real sort of menacing terrifying horrible character um, who is Olivia Coleman's husband in this and I, w- I won't go into any more than that but it's a very dark film but you have to watch it it's one of those films that when I found out about it my dad said he'd got to see it and I said well is it good I've heard good things about it and he just sort of puffed his cheeks out and raised his eyebrows and went yeah but there's always the sort of shocking element to it. And it is shocking. It's not something you would sit down and watch with your parents, but at the same time, it's just amazingly powerful cinema. And if Paddy Constantine's doing this on his debut, I mean, he's going to be making some great films. Let's put it that way. Uh, I'm amazed this didn't get Oscar nods, but uh, the, the two performances 
from the protagonists are just outstanding, like absolutely outstanding. What else have you been watching then? Something a bit more cheerful, I hope. Uh, no. No. Unfortunately, no, not cheerful either. Uh, I'm watching The Clockwork Orange, which, as I say, I'm going to sound like an absolute psychopath has, now. Has, Eng- has England getting knocked out of the Euros just put you in a spiral of depression yeah, and anger and rage? Yeah, the edge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> watch The Clockwork Orange, because I'm trying to work through the IMDb list. Um, it was good, in, and with elements of being great, but I wouldn't say it's a great film like everyone made out that it was. That's obviously shockingly violent as well, and in a sort of different way to to Tyrannosaur. And the thing that you know, if I really compare them, Tyrannosaur seems a lot more real, and mm-hmm. it's a lot more the way it's filmed. It's a lot more up close, and you feel those characters a lot more than Clockwork Orange. Sort of deliberately, I think, sort of tries to desensitize you to the violence and try and make it seem really normal. And you know, that is that is the world that that is in, and it's a you know obviously a futuristic setting. It's not quite as brutal and in your face as the, as the violence is in Tyrone. So it's a very good film. Cubish direction at times is just outstanding and brilliant. I mean, the, the scene with the, the sort of sped up threesome. Uh, yeah. That, that was, you know, fantastic. And I was thinking, well, no one's really must have done that before. That was, that was a great little way to, to do it. And some of it is great, but at times it just felt really overly long. A lot of the shots were too lingering. It was too slow at times. I thought that held it back. It's not I'm not to say that I don't like slow films, but I thought at times it was certain sections of it were too slow and the main performance is, is superb and terrific, but it's it's not one of the greatest films ever and I'm sure James can stop shouting at me now for <laughs> No, I I do see what you're saying. I I, I, I do see where those where those criticisms might come from it's just I personally don't see them as failures of the film. Um, I, I do think Kubrick was never uh, an actor's director, and you know, by kind of apparently, Paddy Considine uh, had is a real actor's director, from what I hear um, from interviews with Eddie Marsden and uh, Olivia Coleman. Um, Kubrick yeah, was all about 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 that. By the way, Constantine apparently there's there's one scene where they're in a pub. Yeah, and someone just asks him, "Are you all right?" And he says it's it's actually Constantine off screen just saying it because he was so drawn in by the performance. Yeah, from from Mullen that he, he just felt obliged to just you know join in because he's wow. You know, yeah, that's so, really I, interesting. I, I do. I, I have got Tyrannosaur basically ready to watch this week. A few people have told me I should watch it, and I. Yeah, you. What you've said has not put me off of it by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, just about Clockwork Orange, I do think that um, the way it is shot is vital to giving you that sympathy for Alex because there's no way on earth you should have any sympathy for this nasty little degenerate, basically. Uh, and we should yeah. feel like um, I don't think I did though. That I think that might be the problem. That might be. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is because I do end up. I, I ended up, he's, he's a massive anti-hero, obviously, uh, and I did end up feeling the sympathy for him, despite the fact that, you know, we see what he does right at the beginning of the film. Uh, and I think that the stylized violence is important for that, because if it was, for example, like I've heard about Tyrannosaur, or like I've seen in Drive recently, or something like, you know, if it was yeah. really hardcore violence that we were, as a viewer, drawn into 
we 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 wouldn't be able to feel that sympathy for him. Um, and that again, you know, you've got the almost comical elements when he's singing, singing in the rain as he's beating up the household and things like that. They they are there to alienate us from the violence almost, so that later on, when his free will is essentially taken from him, we think, and it's almost like the argument against capital punishment. So the fact is, what happens to him is completely dehumanising, and it becomes a moral question of, um, does he deserve to be made less than a human? Um, And without this stylized violence without the music without his narration as well i think which also kind of tries to draw you in i I don't think it works without that but obviously it won't work anyway for some people it obviously didn't work in that sense for you because you still didn't feel any sympathy for him and uh, uh, that's probably a bit healthier than that position where i don't feel bad for him don't get me wrong i felt a bit bad for him at times yeah and there's well, the scene I where never he's felt all the parents never ever like and things like that. And I, I actually, maybe I, maybe I'm the one with the issue. Then in that case, I don't know. But, um, I think I, I think Kubrick was trying to make you empathise with that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the philosophical debate that arises from, without wanting to give too much away, from his treatment, so to speak, that is a really interesting debate. And the whole thing about behaviourism and behavioural psychology, yeah. and it asks really important questions. Yeah, but. At the same time, I couldn't ever empathise fully with the character because he was just such a sociopathic shit, basically. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Have you read the book, the, Jerry? No, I haven't. I, mean, I, I was trying to put off watching it until I'd read the book. Yeah. Read book. Could, I think could, I might have to read it. it. It might be something that the two of them work together because it is a brilliant adaptation of the book and the way uh, i think owen mentioned this on a podcast recently when i talked about clockwork orange the way it actually transfers the language of the book is brilliant because the book when you read the book you think well there's no way on earth you could film this and i i I honestly believe that kubrick did I, i can't believe there could be a better adaptation of the book and maybe I maybe a lot of it comes from the source material. I don't know, but well, that's just my views anyway. Oh, and I how- agree with it. I was just going to say as well, just on a Clockwork Orange. I think it's one of those films that definitely benefits from a rewatch. Because the first yes. time I saw it, I felt similar to Jerry. I thought, mm. okay, it's quite good, but I'm not really understanding why it's so adored by people. But at, you know, the second or third time you watched it, you really do think mm. it's a fantastic film. So I'd suggest giving yeah. it another go in perhaps, you know, a few months. Or in a few years, year, yeah. Uh, just to show my age, the first time I watched it was on a black and white imported video because it was still banned in this country when I watched yeah. it the first time. It was that's, banned. That's a, like, you you are so old. I am so old. I know, I watched it on VHS. <laughs> Can you believe it, Steve? <laughs> well, Owen, how many people died in the other film you want to review this week? <laughs> uh, quite a lot, actually. I watched... I've, I've, I've watched less films this week than I have in previous weeks. So I've only got a few to choose from. But I haven't got a bad one to talk about. Uh, but I've got quite a few good ones. So I've narrowed it down. They're, they're both two ugly films, but ugly in different ways. So the first one I want to talk about, where lots of people died in lots of gory ways, is Brain Dead, uh, which is also known as Dead Alive. It's Peter Jackson's... Uh, it's not his first film, but it's one of his first few films that he made back in New Zealand on a very small budget. Basically, it's the story of this Sumatran rat monkey 
from Skull Island, which is a nod to the old King Kong films. It's there. King Kong was famous, Skull Island. Mm -hmm. But it comes back um, to New Zealand. It's in a zoo. Basically, if it bites you, if it bites you, you turn into a zombie. Um, and it happens to bite the protagonist, uh, Lionel's mum. And she turns into a zombie. And he tries to hide her in his house. And obviously, it doesn't go to plan. She starts biting other people. The people turn into zombies. All the people that visit the house turn into zombies. And it just gets out of hand until near the end of the film. There's a big house party. And he's trying to hide all these zombies in the basement. Why is but they come out and attack everyone. Why is he hosting a house party with... That's a big plot hole there, but I mean... Well, it it does make sense in the story. I can't really say why he has this house party. It's not, by the time there's this party, it's not really his house. It's his uncle's. But I can't really explain the story that leads up to that until, um, well, without spoiling the plot, really. So I'm not going to say how that happens. It just does, and uh, it it does make sense. I, I remember watching this film 10 years ago or something, but I was very drunk at the time. It was one of those kind of studenty nights. And it was, stick it, it was this in, film on. it was in black and white, and you had one telly where the sound didn't work and one <laughs> we, telly we where the picture the didn't work. Nickelodeon. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was even before that fashion sketch where the guy went, but that was very, very drunk. I followed it up by watching a double bill of Desmond's. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I've seen this film, and I'm a bit ashamed to admit that because it's it's like a classic. But it, you know, it's fantastic. It was it, I enjoyed it as much now, I think, as I did watching it for the first time because it's just brilliant. It's just absolutely over the top gore and action, and I have never seen so much fake blood in a film. I mean, you think of the Shining. A lot of zombie films, yeah, that's quite an impressive achievement, actually. (laughs) Well, you know, even in the Shining, where the lifts open and the blood all pours out, I think they probably get through about three or four times as much as that blood in the whole film. It's incredible. The ending is just, my God, it's disturbing and disgusting. Um, You know, it's one of those films, I, I was both sickened by it, but loved it at the same time. It's just fantastic. The dialogue in it is amazing. Um, there's this vicar who fights the zombies and says, stand back, this calls for divine intervention. It is a laugh out loud film, I think. Well, Very dark, sick, twisted humour, but it was, uh, it was my kind of film, I think. But I really enjoyed it. And, um, I, yeah, it's fantastic. And it, even if you don't like zombie films, but you're a fan of the horror film genre in particular, it's worth a watch because, uh, I mean, actually, if you like Evil Dead, you will like brain dead because it's just it's got that same humor and horror elements to it that that, that the evil dead has oh jerry Uh, i was gonna say jerry's been quiet for far too long now so we best move on to what he's been watching we've already done that yeah (laughs) yeah i've only done one i know it's late steve well come on it's not that late yeah we're as professional as ever (laughs) <laughs> Who hasn't gone? I so you, one. Owen needs to do a second one. Yeah. I mean, it's not important. All these northern accents are just merging into one. <laughs> <laughs> so what else have you been watching? Out there from the Midlands. <laughs> one of them. You know, sorry, Steve, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Go on then. Um, <laughs> it's an old 
very old film from 1923, I think. But I wanted to talk about it because my first film was an ugly film, as I said, and this one I think fits into the same um, category. Uh, it's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I'm sure we all know the story of Esmeralda, who's a gypsy's daughter, raised by Guardian in the slums, becomes um, connected to this uh, uh, aristocrat, uh, forms a relationship, father doesn't like it, etc., etc. It's actually the first telling of the story, or the complete story, that I've ever seen or read. I've never read the book, and I haven't watched the Disney film or any of the other numerous interpretations. Um, so it's quite a, a, a new story to me, really. But uh, yeah, it was another, another good film. It was both disturbing and horrible, um, like Brain Dead, but in a very different, different way. Lon Chaney, who plays Quasimodo, is absolutely fantastic you know he's just re he's just perfect for, for, for playing that role he the, the mannerisms that he's got with quasimodo they're, they're very disgusting and you know gross and that's what he's what he's going for and he does it really well um and it is it is very much like a horror film um it, i mean it's very dated horror film as you'd expect for something that's about 90 years old um, but it's got that sort of powerful um, draw to it, with particularly, as I say, with Lon Chaney's um, performance. Uh, and it's probably more gruesome than a lot of modern horror films. There's, there's scenes in it where um, where Quasimodo and Esmeralda are on top of this cathedral of Notre Dame, obviously, and they're trying to fend off these people trying to break into the cathedral. And he's throwing, like, big boulders on top of them and pouring, like, hot, water or hot oil on top of them it's really quite gruesome um it's something you don't expect to see quite so much in in, in such an old film you know the stabbings and you see someone stabbing someone and it's it's yeah it's quite quite powerful um but you know the, 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 there were a few flaws to the film there were the things that you can imagine if a modern director had his hands on that film he would have cut out a lot of those scenes I mean, there's, there's stuff that happens with Esmeralda's mom, which is just absolutely pointless. It adds nothing to the story. It do, all it does is just waste time. Um, yeah, it, it's just really pointless. So I, there are definitely flaws to it. But it looks really good. It's got a good story, obviously. It's got a good story. Um, and it's got great performances in it. So I was really um, uh, pleased I decided to watch that film. I actually watched it on my phone because... It's uh, the films on YouTube, and I've got an app on my phone, which means I can watch YouTube films when I'm not online, which is a bit naughty, I know. But um, the bloke who was sitting next to me when I was watching it uh, on the bus was trying to read a newspaper, and he kept sort of peering over and looking at my phone and watching the film with me. So I thought, that's quite a good draw. If someone can't actually hear any of the music that goes along with it, um, but he's still trying to watch the film with me. I thought, you know, that's quite a positive thing to say about it. So it attracted people's attention, I think. So it was a really good film. I really liked it. Was it controversial at the time? You know how you're saying it's like quite gory even by today's standards. Well, not gory, yeah. but quite gruesome. Was it, was it really controversial? Because obviously 1923, you'd imagine censorship was a bit stronger. I think, yeah, it, 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 it was. And like I say, it was one of the first sort of horror films and it got that reputation of being this, this controversial film, as well as um, a film that followed it shortly after, which was Phantom of the Opera. They both got this reputation as being very early. Um, you know, they were, they were pre-James Whale horror films, for example, you know, pre-Hollywood um, horror films. And they, 
they were really sort of what kickstarted that. I think people saw them and were quite horrified by what was on screen. So they had, they did have that same, same reputation, and they were they were quite controversial at the time. But both, I think, were recognised as being good films, which they are. They're both. Good. That is everyone now, Steve. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> everyone done. Brilliant. Right, that's it for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Then, so after the break, we'll be back with Triple Bill and our favourite documentaries. NFL critic Triple Bill, our favourite three documentaries. Uh, who would like to get things going? <laughs> no one. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I will. Sod it. Um, yeah. Hello. Um, right. Yeah. My my three documentaries again. Oh, documentaries. I've, I've started watching loads of them recently, simply because of Netflix. And uh, anyone who has got Netflix, I just want to say, have a look through that documentary section. There's some fantastic ones there. I noticed one the other day about the the font Helvetica. Ninety minutes about a font. Can't wait to watch that. Anyway, no, I saw, um, I saw that at university for some reason, and no, <laughs> okay, I'm, really? I'm being oh, serious. Ninety minutes about a freaking font. What, it, what? Yeah, that it's just it's it's not worth it. Okay, all right. Well, hopefully these three are. Anyway, um, my first choice, I, I'm struggling to look through my notes. I think I may have mentioned it on a podcast before. So I'm going to start off with that. It's a film called Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. It's available on Netflix, uh, definitely the US version anyway. Um, it came out in 2011, directed by John Foy. Basically, there's these tiles. All over America, 20 US cities in four South American capitals, and they're just embossed in linoleum onto tarmac and pavements, and they say, Toynbee idea in Kubrick's 2001, resurrect dead on planet Jupiter, or kind of variations on those words. And um, this documentary is just a basic whodunit, and it is... A group of people who uh, live in Philadelphia, where they first appeared, led by Justin Durr, who um, decide to try and track down where these where these tiles have come from. They've all found them individually and come together as a group. Um, I just love this documentary because it gives you a, a whodunit over a real genuine mystery, and you get drawn in. And there's a lot of counterculture. Um, uh, use of CB radio and clearly whoever's putting these down is a paranoid delusional maniac uh, and it goes into a lot more detail about the kind of broadcast they were driving around with a car with a CB radio hijacking people's televisions as they drove past it's absolutely fantastic I, I won't go too much into it but they do so they do kind of maybe track down someone maybe track down someone else and it, it in the end, gets left quite open-ended, but it's a brilliant documentary, a fantastic story about something I'd never heard of before I'd seen it, and that was one of my my criteria for a good, good documentary, is that I felt like I'd learned something that I didn't really know before. So, yeah, I, I, yeah quite quickly on that one, because I, I do think I've mentioned it on here before, Resurrected, the mystery of the Toynbee tiles. Um, my second choice... Uh, and I've got a feeling there may, there, there's a chance there's crossover here. Uh, and I know there's definitely crossover with 
some people on the forum as well. But my second choice is Senna uh, from 2010. Uh, oh, it's just such a brilliant, brilliant film. I'm not a huge fan of Formula One. I watched it a bit when I was growing up. I haven't watched it for years, to be honest. But I do remember Senna. Um, but I don't. I didn't really know too much about the story. I mean, it's fantastic. One of the great things about this documentary, actually, is it do, it only uses archive footage, uh, which is so rare these days. It's got a bit of added voiceover throughout the documentary, but all of the footage is taken completely from interviews with Senna uh, and people around Senna, and also just the, the race, uh, the racing footage and things like that. Opens at uh, Monaco, which was Senna's sixth ever Formula One race, um, where he puts in this stunning performance. It starts to rain, and he's coming through the pack, and he's he's going three seconds a lap faster than Alain Prost ahead of him. But then the race gets called off just as he's starting to attack Prost, and it, it that sets up the the conflict for this documentary is basically. All sports need great rivalries, um, and this is one of sports' greatest rivalries: is Senna versus Prost, two totally different characters, and then they end up driving for the same team. Uh, the, what I really loved about it was it made uh, Formula One look far more cool and dangerous than it does these days. Looking back at the old footage, they, those cars just seemed like they could kill anyone at any point, and then. Knowing what happened to Senna, it's got that kind of through the whole thing. The fact that you know how it ends would quite often ruin a documentary uh, or a film. But in this sense, it it's kind of the fact that you know that it adds a different element to the film, uh, and you you get to you also get some nostalgia there. You get to hear Murray Walker again; it's absolutely fantastic. You get to see some brilliant, brilliant racing. Um, but in the end, you're just left with this feeling of a driver who essentially just ran out of luck um and apparently you know the piece from his car that essentially killed him if it had been six inches one way or the other he would have survived and carried on being the fantastic racing driver he was but it i don't believe in destiny but it almost felt like um his life was destined to end that way i don't know if any of you have seen it no it's one of those that i keep seeing and everyone has, has talked about it it's one of those that some of us that I keep meaning to see and never quite get around to. Well, I, I have a quick question, by the way. Yeah. Is it is it mainly race footage, or is a lot of it sort of like behind the scenes, you know, in the pit lane? That there's, there's a lot of behind the scenes, actually. There's some really fascinating behind the scenes footage of pre-race drivers meetings. Because um, there's one race, one year, where um, Prost basically forced Senna out of the race. He crashed into Senna because Prost just had to make sure that Senna didn't finish that race and Prost would win the title, and he did that. Um, and then there's a meeting the following year at the same venue, and Senna walks out of that meeting saying that he got treated like absolute crap last time. And it's really fascinating. There is a lot of stuff like that that you have never seen on television at all. Um, and also there's this great... Um, interview selena scott standing in for wogan on the wogan show interviewing alan prost and he's massively flirting with her and stuff it's just re- it, it does take you really behind the scenes of the drivers and i'd say it's probably about 25 to 30 percent actual racing footage and the rest of it is behind the scenes footage building up these two colossus uh colossi of the sport who are kind of 
inevitably going to just crash headlong into each other, you know, on a in a physical way and also in a metaphorical way. Yeah, no, that, I was really surprised by how much behind-the-scenes narcon footage there was. I don't know where it's been sitting all this time, because uh, there's some footage that you think would never have been like filmed for being used at any point, but it obviously was being. Um, but yeah, the, the director, the editor's done a fantastic job putting together that from what must be thousands of hours worth of footage. Um, and yeah, uh, I'll just go on to my last one then. My last one is Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Uh, the Verite concert film by D.A. Pennebaker of David Bowie's historic July 3rd, 1973 gig at Hammersmith Odeon. The last ever gig of Ziggy Stardust. In fact, at the very end, he says it's the last gig they'll ever do. He was referring to his character of Ziggy Stardust, but watching it, you feel at the time, and you see the fans and think, God, they think David Bowie's going to finish. And it's brilliant because it it just really brings back a time when the world's biggest stars, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. He was playing still a relatively intimate, intimate proper gig venue, which is fantastic because you see these days, you know, no marks like Jesse J and Ollie Murs selling out things like the NEC. It really upsets me that these days you don't even need to be talented to sell out an arena. Whereas back then, the biggest stars in the world were playing right in front of you, 10 feet in front of you, absolutely fantastic, no gimmicks, just performance. And again, this isn't just gig footage, uh, there's some really, really interesting, it's intercut with interesting behind-the-scenes footage, you can hear Mick Ronson's guitar in the background as David Bowie's getting it, you know, having a cigarette, getting into another costume ready, it's, it really, really is, in my opinion, one of, it is the finest concert film I've ever seen mainly because it's one of the best set lists I've ever seen committed to tape uh, from one of the most influential. He might not have sold the most records. He might not have sold more records than the Beatles and Elvis Presley. But to, even today, he's still one of the most influential musicians ever. Um, and watching this, you can see why. So, yeah, I cannot recommend Ziggy Stardust highly enough either. Okay, so who will take up the baton then for the next lot? They're a triple bill. And did anyone have any crossover with James? No, no crossover. I, I will take up the, the inspirational mantle that you've just uh, handed out there. <laughs> um, one of mine, actually, as James was saying about Netflix, um, particularly the US version, if you can say if, if you look online, you'll, you'll be able to find information yeah. on how easy it is to get US Netflix. Um, one of mine comes up there as well, so I'll start with that one for me as well. Um, it's Fairly recent and, and, to be honest, quite unknown, but I would never have come across it on Netflix. Um, it's from 2010. It's called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. Um, and basically, it uh, follows the story, initially at least, of a guy called Joe Cross, um, who's, you know, he's, he's, he's fat, he's about 100 pounds overweight. Uh, he's having to take these drugs for this weird, rare autoimmune deficiency condition thing that he has. Um, and he's pretty sick and feeling unhealthy and having to take drugs every day. And I think I think more than the, the weight, the drugs are the main issue for him. He, he just hates having to take medication and knowing that he will have to take this for the rest of his life every single day. Um, and, you know, one morning he, he, he has this moment where he wakes up and he looks at himself in the mirror and he's, you know, he's 300 and something pounds and he's he's not like he, he, he should have been. Uh, and he thinks, God, I, I need to sort this out. And he sort of decides to really defy conventional medicine and, and the way doc, 
doctors would generally prescribe things like this. Obviously, he's being prescribed drugs. Uh, and because of that, none of that's working, he decides to do a quite extreme solution, which is for the next two months or 60 days, he eats nothing but juiced vegetables. So he gets a load of vegetables, sticks them in a juicer, drinks it, does that like four times a day or three times a day. Um, and that's all he eats, which obviously is quite an extreme way to do things. And <laughs> my initial reaction was, well, it's just one of these weird extreme diet things that's going to be a bit crazy. Actually, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, as he's taken this, these 60 days, he, he combines this with the journey from coast to coast of America. So he starts in New York and he's interviewing lots of just, you know, everyday people and the odd doctor and, you know, dietitian and things about American attitudes to food and, and modern, you know, modern culture and how it shapes the way we eat and weight and all that kind of thing. Um, so it's sort of a journey for him and a physical journey as well, meeting new people. And one of these people that he meets at a truck stop is an is a even more overweight guy um, who happens to have the same very rare, unusual uh, autoimmune disease that he has. And he, you know, he's basically travelling around with a fucking juicer in the back of his car trying to convince people to have this weird vegetable juice and trying to convert them, which is a bit preachy, but he's, he's Australian, so it's kind of not as preachy in American as, as it might have been in other hands. Uh, and this guy, anyway, is called Phil, um, gets in touch with him a few weeks later, realises that, he, you know, he really needs to change and he, he's been thinking about what, what Joe's said to him. So then from then on, this is probably about halfway through the, the, the film. Then we suddenly jump and follow Phil and his journey, and he goes off and sort of goes away from his normal life and goes to a bit of a bit of a retreat in a nice place and um, does the the juice the juice fast for sixty days uh, and loses loads of weight and feels really healthy. And, and amazingly enough, I'm not spoiling much to say, both of them managed to to get rid of this condition. Um, and it's you know it's an interesting look at really why we try and mask certain things when actually if we pay attention to what our bodies really need maybe some of the some of the problems that we suffer might be resolved but overall it's just as a personal you know human interest journey these two guys go on it's really interesting they're they're engaging they're, they're quite funny at times both of them are really likable people and you know you sort of want that you want to know what happens to them you're interested in them. so you, you learn something I mean, he doesn't advocate it as a long-term solution. He just advocates it as a, you know, fix your quick fix for your health kind of solution. So it's not too crazy. I can't say that I really want to live off juiced vegetables, though. It's just fucking dirt. So, so it's, the, it's a kind of reverse supersize me. Yeah, in a way. Or the, or the, or the, or the premise is, at least. It's interesting, because if I'd, if I'd read that description... Uh, yeah, if I'd read you know, a quick summary of that, I'd think sounds like a Channel Four documentary or something like you know, like embarrassing bodies or something like that. But you've made it sound really interesting. My second choice, I'll go on to that one now, is sort of a similar field, um, but not. This is another relatively unknown one. This one's called Bigger, Stronger, Faster, which is uh, without wanting to sound too controversial. Um, it's a documentary about steroids and trying to sort of uncover myths about steroids. And it's made by a guy called Chris Bell. Um, and he is one of three brothers. And his other two brothers both take steroids and he, he's never taken steroids. And he's trying to understand why they took steroids. And, and 
interestingly, it starts off with sort of examination of the eighties action heroes that you know. I'm sure uh, a lot of listeners will have will have grown up sort of idolizing. You know, Arnie Stallone, uh, you know, the likes of Hulk Hogan and WWF wrestlers, all that kind of culture. Um, and you know how when you when he was a kid, he thought, "Oh, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to look like. I want to be, you know, big, huge action hero." And then obviously, it turns out that. Actually, it wasn't like like Hulk Hogan said. He wasn't just eat, eating his uh, his vitamins and taking his prayer and, and saying his prayers. He, he was taking stuff. So it's it's about sort of looking at the American dream and what sort of American culture promotes and the, the ideals that it puts forward, and then the sort of dark reality that's behind that. And, and it has a lot of parallels to a lot of the stuff that, that's said in, in film and in, in the media about you know what lies underneath. The representation that we that, that we're given of society, and, and maybe how oh, a lot of it's not the truth. You know, you can apply it to with Photoshop and the fact that it's all that kind of stuff. But he manages to take a quite level view on the whole subject, and he sort of avoids the sensationalism that the media often do. And he talks to all kinds of people, you know, people who work in Olympic Olympic level drug testing, all that kind of thing. Um, and he looks at the positives and the negatives, and the sort of tries to debunk a few of the myths and, and he also has a bit of a personal journey throughout the whole thing as well as, as taking the more objective side because he's he's dealing with his brothers and one of his brothers is a sort of failed professional wrestler he had a couple of years in WWF in the early 90s and he is a really messed up guy you know he has mental health problems because he, he can't deal with not making it not being famous and he can't deal with his own failure so he is really interested in that comes through and the sort of relationship between the family and the brothers um, and he even branches out looks at sort of the food supplement industry the illusions they create there's some really interesting stuff about that about before and after shots um, talking to models who you know are promoting something but actually they're all on steroids anyway um, it's just really interesting all the way and it's it, one of the more poignant things about it I knew going into this film that his older brother who's the one with the mental health issues uh, actually died because he, he, he killed himself because he, he couldn't deal with you know his own issues that had arisen from his the way he defined his self-worth and that kind of thing and and in the film he does try and move away and, and sort of start again and make a go of his career and it's very sad all the way through you know his relationship with his brothers and his relationship with his family um, but that is also you know not that the only focus you get a lot of information and a lot of stuff that, that maybe you wouldn't get in the media there's no sense of sensationalism or anything like that it's just really interesting and I learned loads of stuff which as James says is what I what I want from a documentary is I want to learn things I want to understand sort of the world that certain people live in that I maybe didn't understand before and I want to be interested in the people who, who are involved in the documentary first and foremost I mean I, I don't want to watch something about people I don't care about to be honest so mm-hmm. The people in this, in this are, are definitely people you end up caring about. So it's a lot more than it seems on the surface. It's not just about, you know, steroids, are they good or bad? It's, it's well worth a watch. It's not, it's not very popular, mm. but it's, it's worth a watch. Um, a more popular one, which is my final choice, um, I think this is probably going to be the one that most people will know out of my three. Um, I'll try to avoid going for sort of more famous ones because of that, because I wanted to try and sort of promote ones that, that maybe people haven't seen. So I avoided Man on Wire, which is excellent. Mm, yeah. Um, and I went for Tyson, which is a 2008 documentary, obviously examining 
Mike Tyson, global boxing superstar. And he's a very controversial guy. Again, I, I realised I seem like a complete meathead here talking about steroids and <laughs> Mike Tyson, but um, please don't get that impression. Um, basically, it tries to understand Mike Tyson as a person and, and sort of look behind the controversies and sort of understand the world that he grew up in, the world that he, he lived in once he was famous, um, you know, what makes him tick, really, what his motivations are, what... Really, the whole thing is an attempt to understand what it is like to be Mike Tyson. And really, you will realise that it's not a very nice thing to be Mike Tyson. He's, he's a very sort of haunted guy. Um, it's a bit of an emotional journey. You know, Tyson breaks down a couple of times. Uh, you, you get a real sense for him in his life. And, you know, the, the attempts he's making to rebuild certain things and, 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 you know, build bridges again with relationships that he's ruined. And he's, he's quite self-aware, which is surprising, really. And, it's not how he comes across in the media. He is a very self-aware guy. And he, he's, that's what makes him a bit sad as well, is because he knows that he's fucked up a lot of things, really. Um, and I think a lot of people get will get put off by the fact that it's Tyson and they, they have certain preconceptions about him. But this really is just... It's, at, at its heart, it's just a, a human interest story. It's, it's about one guy and understanding him. And he is a very difficult character and he's very complex and... You know, you, you, you don't like him, but you, you end up sort of understanding him even if you don't like him. I mean, I, I, I quite like him anyway as a boxer. Um, mm-hmm. I understand a lot of people are really not a, a big fan of Mike Tyson for obvious reasons. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting way of making you look at him and sort of the whole situation that he, he has, he's had throughout his life in a different way and maybe not just making assumptions. In in terms of those obvious reasons, you meant you know the fact that he he served jail time for rape. Um, yeah. Does it does it skirt around those, or is it quite upfront and honest? No, does it challenge him on that at all? Yeah, or? they they do sort of challenge him. I mean, you you don't know whether he's he's had to be pushed and probed for a long mm. time before. You know, you you don't know with the editing, but he, he is sort of pushed to talk about the the dark times of his life, shall we say? And there's, there's been enough of them. Yeah, uh, there's plenty of material for them to cover there with, with Tyson, with the sort yeah. of dark aspects of his character, and he is quite frank about it. I mean, some of the stuff about his relationship with his kids, and you know, he's very regretful about how he sort of maybe didn't didn't do what he should have done for his kids and things like that, um, and how he's struggling now to to deal with the after effects of that and, and the, the damage that's had on on himself and on his relationship with his kids and family, his kids. And, and, you know, there is interesting things and they, they don't really shy away from them. But at the same time, I'm not sure how how readily he came out with that information, if you know what yeah. I mean. They could have spent a lot of time getting that out and editing it in a certain way to make him look more frank. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite... Well, we've talked about it before, but I'm sort of quite cynical about the whole film anyway. I mean, you kind of have to take into consideration what was the purpose of him making that documentary. And it's at the heart of it. I think it is just so Tyson can rebrand himself in a way that he can make, sell sell his own, you know, he sell his image in a positive way. And um, there, there was stuff that I know you mentioned previously about how he cries in the documentary and stuff like that to me just comes across as a really... And perhaps it's just me being overly cynical, but it just seems like a, a very cheesy way or a very easy, I guess, way to, to try and win over an audience. And um, how much does it sort of play on that in the documentary, I guess, is my question. Um, 
I can understand what you know the, the concerns. I think that that was one that I had myself going in is, is how you know sort of exploitative it might be, and how maybe it's trying to paint a very sympathetic picture of a man who really isn't you know deserving of, of having a sympathetic picture painted on. And I wouldn't describe the sympathy. The whole thing is just very sad. You you end up feeling sorry for Tyson in a way that you just think, Jesus, it must just be shit being being Mike Tyson because it just he just seems like a bit of a. It's a weird combination of he's, he knows he's a wanker. Do you know what I mean? He, I don't think it's it's a cynical sort of exploitation. You know, make him cry that kind of thing. But I can understand why you would have those concerns. Maybe, maybe if you watched it, you might have a different interpretation of it. But that, that isn't my interpretation of it. But I think that there is certainly an argument that could be made if you went into it with that view. But I'd be interested to see if you watched it, if you still held that view again, or whether you thought it was genuine. That would be a real test for it, I think. Yeah, I'll have to, because I am one of these people that can't see him in a positive light. So <laughs> if the documentary can make me change my mind, then then it must be a good documentary. I want to move on to my choices quickly because obviously I didn't watch any films in this week so I haven't got anything to review for part one so you haven't heard nothing like Celtic Times. Anyway, I won't bore all the listeners too long of mine because two of them I've spoken about before on this podcast. The first one, um, which will be third in my list obviously, is, they're all sporting films, the first one is uh, Zidane, a 21st century portrait which some people have said it's just more of an art piece rather than a documentary, but it just basically follows Zinedine Zidane in a game from 2005 for Real Madrid against Villarreal. And it's 18, cam- no, 17 cameras, sorry, just following Zidane for a whole match, which might sound boring, but he does get sent off at the end as a result of a brawl. Um, but it's just, it's, it's following, I mean, if you're a football fan, which I know many of our listeners are because we started off on a, a football forum. Um, but yeah, it's just following one of the greatest players, certainly of this generation, if not ever, around during a game. And you could use it from anything. It's just sort of a documentary or a piece of work, just, you know, following the, you know, how beautiful football can be when it's played by somebody of his talent. Or you could use it as a coaching manual of, what you should be doing even when you don't have the ball. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I wanted to see it at the time and I never got round to it, but I, I was always just a little bit worried it was going to be a bit boring, <laughs> I'll be honest. It's, it's, <laughs> if you like football as much as I do, and, you know, yeah. and, I mean, some players, it's, you're not going to have John O'Shea, a 21st century portrait. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got to be a player like Zidane, who's, not only, you know, a genuine one-off talent, but somebody who is an, you know, a character as well. I mean, you obviously know from his yeah. his exploits in the 2006 World Cup final, he got sent off for headbutting Matarazzi. You know, and looking into, you know, a bit of research into this documentary, a German filmmaker did the same um, with George Best, with less cameras, obviously, because it was a long time ago, but done the same idea with George Best, which I'm trying to dig out at the moment, just followed him for a game, just him and nothing else. It's just yeah. the idea of, you know, that kind of maverick player with such a, such a one-off talent and such a, a, yeah. a engaging and entertaining personality and interesting. I mean, because Adan, as well as being a good player, he was, he was worth a red card or two. 
Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, you know, he could do anything at any moment. Yeah, Balotelli's the one now who I mean, you could say is potentially world class, but is certifiably nuts. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you need, also I I I remember at the time seeing that the soundtrack was done by Mogwai. Yeah, um, and and any football match which has got a soundtrack by Mogwai rather than Mark Lawrence and moaning. <laughs> over the top of it is is a plus point from me as well. Um, and sticking with football, second choice is One Night in Turin, which I think might have been quite close to making James's list. Yeah, and I, I know I spoke about it quite recently. Uh, mm. uh, to the, well, in the cut to the Euros, we spoke about it quite a bit because yeah. we both watched it. Um, I won't talk about it too much, but basically he follows England in a 90, uh, World Cup Italian 90 match against Belgium and just just the last time England would go, I think. I mean, in, in looking into it, I know England got to the semi-final at Euro 96, but they were by and large lucky throughout most of it, and their big result against Holland came from a, the worst Holland team for years, and they just... In, in just in, in just one of their spells where they're all falling out and fighting each other. Yeah. But, but, yeah, you know, an excellent documentary, just, you know, following the last good England team. Say for Le Tournoire in nineteen ninety seven, and yeah. the final film that is a great honour. Le Tournoire, why did they why did they ever get rid of that? Yeah, terrible idea. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, the final film in my list, one I spoke about before, one I've raved about before, is Freedom's Fury. Oh yeah, uh, which I implore everybody to see, and it tells a story as a nineteen fifty six Hungarian water polo team, which doesn't sound like the most interesting uh, topic for a documentary, um, especially when water polo seems to be one of them games that you just sort of are forced to play in some resort hotel somewhere when you're sat around by the pool. But yeah, it's uh, basically 1956 is the year of the Hungarian um, uprising and revolution where they, the Hungarian people rise up against the oppressive Soviet Union government in charge of their country. Um, the so the Hungarian team are um, in a training camp in the mountains, and they can see sort of all the, the trouble going on below them. They move to Czechoslovakia so they can get away from all the trouble. End up um, going to Australia where the 1956 Olympics are without knowing too much about it um, until they get there and they find out what's happened. End up playing the USSR, Soviet Union, um, in one of the games. They win four nil, but it's known as the blood in the water match. Um, because of the injury that one of the young players, the star of the team, um, suffered from being just basically punched by, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, punt, uh, Ervin Zadol, who was, um, yeah, punched by one of the Russian players and ended up bleeding. But it was, you know, there's a lot of expatriate, um, Hungarians in the crowd. Um, the crowd got on the Russians back because it was such a violent game and, they were just spitting on Russian players from the side of the pool that the police had to usher the crowd out with time left. Is there footage from the actual match then? Is there yeah. some decent footage? There's, there's, there's some reconstruction as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I won't um, watch. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, it's, it's just... It's, it's such a different... It, it's such a different docu- you know, kind of documentary. It's one of those that... Um, you know, shows how sport, what you know, what sport can do for a country to build a country. You know, how 
you can use sport for so many things and how sport can be used to give you know a country a, a feel-good factor when it needs it. I mean, Hungary not only hammered the Soviet Union 4-0, but they actually won the gold medal. Yeah, um, um, but don't let Seth Blatter watch this because he'll keep on giving the bloody World Cup story. Uh, another, another, <laughs> just, just a few little interesting bits of trivia about Freedom's Fury before I finish. Um, it's narrated by Mark Spitz, the American um, swimmer who won seven gold medals in one Olympics because he was coached by Irvin Zadl, the, the player who was who was bleeding in the water in the Hungarian team. And the film was uh, co-produced or co-executively produced by Lucy Liu and Quentin Tarantino. Quickly, it, just, it doesn't just tell the story of this this water polo team and that one game. It's it's all about the um, uh, Hungarian uh, the uprising and you know what was you know one of the first uprisings against an oppressive communist Soviet government. Anyway, that's my list done. So Owen. Yeah, okay. Um, first documentary I've chosen is quite well known, I think, actually. It's a documentary called The Aristocrats. So it's about the infamous aristocrats in-joke uh, between comedians, and it features interviews with uh, quite a lot of, I think it's over a hundred of these sort of big, well-known comedians. So it's got interviews with George Carlin in it, um, Billy Connolly, uh, Drew Carey, Robin Williams, Ed Izzard. Uh, it's just it's just full of all these comedians. Uh, basically, what they do as part of their interview is they have to tell the aristocrats joke. And the aristocrats joke is this, um, like I say, some, it's a secret handshake between comedians, really. Uh, and they, everyone has their own unique way of telling the joke. The joke essentially is, um, the setup is that a, a guy goes to a talent agent and he says, I've got this, this fantastic show for you. The talent agent says, go on. And then... Basically, the comedian then starts giving these really, um, how do I say, it's improvised jokes about incest, about rape, about child molestation, basically the most offensive stuff that they can think of to try and outshock each other. Um, and then there's, there's a punchline to the joke, which is kind of agent says what you call Zach, and the punchline is the aristocrat. So they all widely acknowledge that the joke itself is a terrible joke, um, but it's more, the documentary doesn't necessarily focus on just people telling a joke to be funny. It's, it's more about, um, about how offensiveness is uh, perceived by different people, particularly with comedians and how, for, for comedians, that they have a, a, an almost their own sense of humour, and it's about how far they will have to go um, not just how far they can go, but like I say, how far they have to go to make each other laugh. But how um, it, you know, to, to them, it's funny because they, they they've got no boundaries, or at least they're trying to smash through any boundaries that they think might be set up between them. But the documentary, as I say, it's really insightful. It, even this, it, it's just interesting to see how comedians um, interact with each other behind the scenes. You know, you see. See them on panel shows quite a lot, uh, and, and even sort of when they're on guests on, on talk shows and stuff, chat shows. They, they kind of present themselves in the, a, a, a particular way that they want to be seen uh, by an audience. Even on stage, I guess, is, is a way that they want to be seen. Whereas in this documentary, there's just something about it which 
it kind of feels a bit unique. You, you, you gain something out of these comedians that you wouldn't have gotten um, by watching them on stage or, or seeing an interview with them on a Channel 4 um, you know, magazine program or something like that. So it, I thought it was really interesting. And um, it's uh, Stuart Lee uh, mentions, he's the person who first brought my attention to the documentary, actually, with, with his book. Um, which came out a couple yeah. years ago, I think. Now I spent my certain death, that one. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that was the first introduction I got to the documentary where, where he says he, he stumbled across it at one of these comedy festivals and it, you know, it, it changed, changed his perception of comedy as well. So it's really yeah. interesting and it's had an effect on a lot of comedians um, and it's just really... It's, it's worth watching. It's on TV quite a lot. I think it's on film four every, every yeah. month. Um, so if you see it on there, I, I definitely recommend either recording it or, or watching it whilst it's on because it's um, fantastic. It is a really interesting film, definitely. And like you say, anyone who's well, anyone who is a fan of Stuart Lee will be a fan of the the structure and the construction of stand up, uh, almost yeah. certainly. And and it is a really good kind of look at that because you're right. You don't get to see behind the curtain very often yeah. when it comes to stand-up. And this is really... There is some absolutely horrible stuff in it. <laughs> um, uh, and even the comedians themselves will, will admit, oh, it's not necessarily funny. I, it, it, it almost feels like the joke in itself is the equivalent of an opera singer going through their scales before a performance yeah. <laughs> or something like that. It is working on those improvisational uh, muscles and saying... Right, okay, where can I go to shock an audience? But I don't necessarily want to go there, but where can I do, where can I, you know, I need to know I can go there if I need to. No, really, really interesting documentary. Oh, glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, like I say, I recommend it. It's really, it is really interesting. Um, or at least I find it interesting anyway. Um, my second choice is, uh, perhaps, we'll see what you, what you think, whether you guys agree, but I think it's um, a real documentary. But I've gone for Catfish, which is another quite well-known um, documentary. It was released in cinemas, even, I think. And comes up on TV quite a lot on sort of E4 and things like that. But it's basically um, marketed as a documentary that you can't talk about, because if you talk about catfish, you spoil catfish for everyone. So it's really hard for me to talk about, <laughs> to try and give it a, a good review. But one of the things that people, one of the faults, I guess, that people find in it is some people think it's not real. Um, so there's a sort of doubt about how authentic it is as a documentary. Um, personally, I think it is real. It's not, it's hardly this outrageous story that it could only have been made up. Um, but I can see where people are coming from because of the way that it's shot, it's almost some of the scenes are almost too, too good to be a documentary. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's real, but I, it's also really interesting. It's played out more like a drama. Um, it's kind of uh, yeah. It's kind of got this narrative to it, and it's shot by these amateur documentary makers who um, I actually think they do know how to use the cameras. They actually go on to make um, Paranormal Activity three because they do so well. Okay. Yeah, but it's um. Sorry, go on, James. I personally, have, I personally haven't seen it. Um, okay. But I have heard that, yeah, you can't really know too much about it going in. 
uh, kind of thing. And I have heard the controversy of, is it really? Um, which I think also got another one of my nine nearly shows, um, Exit Through the Gift Shop, the, the Banksy okay. documentary, which again is, um, people go, well, actually, is that real? You know, are people subverting or even just cheating? Um, which is, which is an argument you could have with a lot of documentaries, really. You know, how structured, yeah. uh, how real are they? Uh, anyway, uh, but no, I, I've I've heard about Catfish, and I keep meaning to watch it. I just haven't got around to it. I I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. The, the way that the sort of story unfolds, it, it does play out like you're watching a, a drama rather than a documentary. Um, but they, you know, I've seen interviews with the um, the filmmakers, and they they all swear blind that it was uh, definitely a documentary, and they didn't break any of it. But you do get the impression from watching it, perhaps maybe they're exaggerating slightly when they say it's all real. Some of it, it kind of gives the impression it could have been reshot after the events have taken place. Like they've gone, oh, that was a good bit. A shame we didn't get the right footage for that. Oh, let's just reshoot it as if it was real. It kind of has that feel to it. But I think that the actual story itself is quite possibly real. I mean, they had, they reckon they had about 24 hours worth of footage and they had to condense it down into sort of 80, 90 minutes. Um, so it, it, I can understand people getting that impression. But I, I quite like it. If you buy into it being a, a real documentary, I think you'll enjoy the drama of it as it unfolds. So, okay. I, yeah, I'd recommend it. And my final choice is... Um, Although it has zombie in the title, I'm not just picking a zombie film for the sake of picking a zombie film. <laughs> it's called Zombie Girl the Movie. What it's about is essentially a documentary of a 12-year-old girl called Emily who decides that actually what she wants to do in life is to become a film director. And she decides the first thing that she's going to do is um, film a zombie film, a, a feature-length indie zombie film. And it follows Emily from the conception of her idea to um, going into to see sort of, uh, film studios and makeup people, um, all the way through to the actual first premiere screening of her film. And it covers all the anxieties that she has about whether anyone will turn up to see the film, whether anybody will like the film, or the things that any independent filmmaker, with, you know, regardless of whether they're a twelve-year-old girl or a fifty-year-old Italian. You know, it's all <laughs> it's all the same same issues that come up. They're like getting actors to, to turn up on time, making sure all the extras that you need are there. It's it's more insightful as a documentary about indie filmmakers and how it's changed now. How it's now an industry where where a twelve year old girl can pick up a camera, you know, can get funding for a film and speak to friends and they can put out a film and you know it, it, it's not always been that way you know making sure you've got enough money for, for, for the film which itself is very expensive and you know now, nowadays you can just pick up uh, almost an iPhone and just go out and, and record stuff and you can make a film that way yeah so it's, 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 it is an interesting um, insight um, into, into into filmmaking and it's also it does follow Emily so you see her as um, her anguish as she's you know struggling to to get the film done on time, and also arrange sort of her family. You, I mean, it would be quite easy to assume that she's just got this really pushy mom or pushy dad who's just you know living their dreams out vicariously for their, their daughter. But 
it's not, I mean, everyone in it is really genuine, they seem really nice, and they are just really supportive parents, and so you don't, you don't get this horrible, uh, I hate these people, these, you know, they're really dragging the film down. It's not, it's, it's an easy film to watch, but about sort of this young, ambitious girl and her dreams, and how she's aspiring to be this, 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 um, this filmmaker. The final film itself that she makes looks terrible. <laughs> it's this really <laughs> awful zombie film. But that's not the point. The point is that there's this girl, and she's made out this, this, this dream of hers to be a film director, and she, she pulls it off, however terrible the film itself looks or not. It, it, you know, it is a, an uplifting documentary, um, and also really interesting to see if you're interested in um, making films at all. And it does come up on TV as well quite a lot, so I think three films are quite easy to get hold of. Um, it comes up on Sky Arts every so often, so if you subscribe to I'll look out for that. That sounds really. That does sound really quite positive. I like. I like the sound of that. Like you say, yeah. she gets. She gets out there and she does. And you're right. Um, just it, even in the last three or four years, the way the industry has changed. Uh, I know the director of Old Boy is making a 30 minute film on an iPhone now. Um, uh, and there was a feature film out last year recorded on a Nokia N8. Uh, but yeah, it's, and it, it taking me back to well, I was talking about Primer in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. They made that for seven grand, and almost the entire budget was spent on film stock. Uh, and, but you know, and so they had to scrape together seven grand. Whereas now he probably could have made that for a grand using oh, digital yeah. technology. And it, it and it just, just you can make you. It means now if you've got some talent, you could make a a decent feature film for for a grand and that's unbelievable yeah. well I mean, and then like... you could distribute it online uh, yeah it's it, it film is going through the same um process that music went through about five mm-hmm. five six years ago uh, and it's really really exciting for anyone who wants to be involved in that and this sounds like a fantastic story you know really inspiring story it is, yeah. I, like I say, I definitely recommend it, and it's easy to get hold of if you've got subscribers. It's on there all the time. It might even be on Netflix, I think, actually. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I'd recommend it. I think you'd enjoy it as well as, a, as an aspiring filmmaker yourself, James. I think you would really uh, get some nervous, so. <laughs> Well, best wrap up part two now. Uh, James, quickly, what is the next week's triple bill? Uh, next week's triple bill is oh god I've just I've got notes for absolutely everything apart from that hang on one second <laughs> that's terrible isn't it I, I did know oh yeah next week's triple bill is um, I'm quite excited about this um, remake remodel uh, all of us are going to pick three films or franchises that we think need to be remade rebooted um, basically because we're seeing Amazing Spider-Man this week but the films that you want to remake or reboot, I want to hear who's directing it for you and who you're casting in those roles. So that and what kind of direction you might take the film in. So that's what we're doing next week. We're getting creative. For this week's uh, new release review, we went to see, or most of us went to see, Jerry's let off for being on crutches with one leg. 
Uh, went to see the thigh. Th- th- I do have two legs. I would just like to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remove a leg. I just have a large wound of, and screws and stuff in my knee. Uh, the five-year work again. <laughs> <laughs> the five-year engagement starring Jason Segel and Emily Blunt. Um, so, James, do you want to tell everyone? Well, introduce the film to people. Okay, yeah, so it's uh, directed by Nicholas Stoller, written by Jason Siegel and Nicholas Stoller, who were the writing team behind the recently very much loved uh, on this podcast, uh, Muppets movie. It's about uh, a couple, Tom and Violet, who get together, get engaged, but then life keeps getting in the way and... Will they or won't they get married? That's the big, that's the big question that needs answering by this film. Also, um, supporting cast of, um, people like, uh, Chris Pratt, uh, and Alison Brie. But, uh, yeah, let's come on to that anyway. Yes. Like I said at the, the top of the podcast, we won't be doing a spoiler alert because it basically follows the same basic outline of every romantic comedy of boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Boy gets back together with girl. So I mean, I don't think I've spoiled the film for no. uh, anybody who's going to watch spoil, it. We won't just go out to spoil. Bits no, we won't, we won't tell you everything that happens in detail. Yeah. But there's, yeah, that's why we're not doing spoiler alert this week, anyway. Um, yes, what was the three of us that saw the film anyway? What was our general opinions of it? Oh, Too much I'm, as expected, I thought, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm gonna probably. Stand up for the genre of rom-com here. Okay. I've been having this conversation with a number of people on Twitter this week, a number of people who I've been talking to. Um, Basically, I think if you go and see a rom-com, if you go and see this film, you need to accept that there are some conventions to the rom-com genre that you need to buy into first. So you need to accept that there are conventions here. So you need to accept there's going to be a happy ending. You need to accept that some people... Um, it's not a neo-realism. They're not going to be ultimately, it's not a Mike Lee film. Okay. Some people are going to have very hyper real things, uh, about their personality. But overall, okay. Um, my, my summary of how I felt was I felt this had some good jokes. I thought it had some charming central performances. And for what it was, which was a mass market romantic comedy, it was a lot better than a lot of the other ones you see in this area. There you go. Yeah, I mean, silence. <laughs> I, by and large, agree. It was it was a solid. If you're going to give a film a rating out of ten, which I don't like to do because it's quite subjective, and then are you, are you doing it out of ten for the genre or? For every yeah, film you've ever seen, mean, yeah. but I mean, generally it was it was like a six out of ten. It was watchable without being brilliant, but it wasn't terrible. It was it was funny, but rarely laugh out loud funny. I mean, I was smiling at most of the jokes, but I wasn't laughing my head off at most of the jokes. Although there were a few that were quite funny. Uh well, no, I was opposite of that. Really, I I'm I'm not. A fa- I'll come out and say I'm not a fan of the genre. As a whole, anyway. And to be a, a good rom-com, I think you have to have two main people in it who, um, a boy and a girl, or, you know, boy and a boy, I suppose, or a girl and a girl, doesn't really matter. Two, two people in a relationship who you genuinely like or enjoy watching, um, 
and, and you, you can get something out of the fact that they're together and if they're if they're in love and they're happy or you know or sad or whatever you you kind of sympathize or empathize with them and you you can feel that yourself i didn't get that with either of the two two leads in this you know if i compare it to something i, I don't watch a lot of rom-coms but something like <laughs> the, the british sitcom sitcom him and her with russell tovey and sarah Soleimani. they don't play likable characters but it's the fact that they've got this convincing uh, performance of a couple in love that sells the program. With, with five-year engagement, I just felt like they were playing two characters in a relationship of a film of how a relationship is supposed to be in a Hollywood rom-com. They didn't get. They, I didn't get anything from their relationship that I. I couldn't have got from just imagining what any other relationship in any other rom-com would have been like. Am I, I've explained that very well. <laughs> you, you've explained. No, I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, you have explained it well. I just happen to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, part of it, part of it, I think, will be because simply because um, I think with any rom com or any, you you bring some of your own personal baggage to it. Um, I, I I honestly think that you know love and relationships are just as valid. Um, a subject to make a film about because it's something that we all go through as human beings. We all want to be loved. We all want to have sex with people. That's just part of our DNA. That's how we're built. Um, my problem is with rom-coms is some of them are marketed. Pure. It, it, at some point, someone went, you know what? We should just market these rom-coms at women. Uh, and then they started writing it for what they thought women wanted rather than saying, do you know what, let's just write a story of two people in love. I honestly think this is more the story of two people in love rather than what people would want to say. I think that Tom and Violent, the the two main characters, in my opinion, they don't make any unbelievable life decisions until maybe later in the film, which is it's a common issue with rom-coms that quite often the first half, um, nicely paced, lots of jokes, setting up the conflict is quite often better, more interesting than the bit where it kind of finally gets onto its rails and leads to its inevitable conclusion of them getting together. I've got a big issue with third acts in rom-coms anyway. Um, but I felt that this one, it, it did set up kind of believable real-life problems. You know, they had, they had real people jobs rather than jokey jobs. Um, they, you know, they, they still allowed humor to exist in those environments but um I, I, jason siegel was as charming as uh, as he usually is now i know that you owen you we had this conversation before you said you don't you didn't think you'd ever seen him in anything apart from one episode of how i met your mother and a, a voice in is it despicable, despicable me, me yeah, yeah yeah um whereas i i i like it and i i really like him but it's all it's, it's interesting, actually. It goes on to this thing that I've noticed recently where the sitcom has become almost equal to film. Do you remember back in the 90s when Friends was huge and everyone watched Friends? But then everyone got, like, really... There was always loads of hype whenever someone from Friends made a film. It was like... It was really hyped up. Look, that's someone from Friends. And these days, sitcoms and... People jump between the two a lot easier now. Um, and what it does is it gives this kind of cinematic shorthand to the audience... 
um, where you don't have to do so much setting up the character. Now, some people might say that's lazy. Some people might say, oh, actually, that's quite handy for me as a member of the... It's almost like a generic convention itself. The generic convention of Jason Siegel is he's always a charming, slightly lovable, oafish character kind of thing. So you know what to expect with him. Um, Emily Blunt's character, I thought, hey, I was really pleased they just made her English. Um, rather than trying to give her an American accent or anything like that. Um, I, I honestly thought they were two real people. They were very Richard Curtis. I, 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 they were very middle-class American, um, which, again, is still a little bit of a problem we get with rom-coms. People seem to live in uh, houses and apartments that their salary shouldn't be able to afford and stuff like that. Um, Can I jump in there? That is my one of my main... <laughs> <laughs> problems with rom-coms is how overwhelmingly middle class and fucking unrealistic yeah. they are like it's like yeah. this proper bubble rom-coms seem to exist in this this sort of hollywood americanized bubble of middle classness and even ones where brits get involved yeah. you know fucking hugh grant is the most middle class man in the history of britain so you know every yeah. character in that is always in that sort of same social strata and it, it, and I think it a loses lot that, a lot of the realism a lot of that comes from the aspirational nature of it unfortunately um, and but, I think also it's it's escapism on, yeah. on the base of it the film is escapism isn't it yeah. and, and you mentioned that they're marketed towards women it's basically everything is really nice even when things aren't going well for the main characters like their relationship is falling apart it's, it's still this relatively nice situation that they're in they just yeah, decided to call it off and it, but it's escapism for the, for the audience you're, you're supposed to buy into it in the same way that when you know you go to watch a batman film you think that yeah. is really cool i wish i was driving that car kind of thing but you it, know, it, or, yeah. a kid watches power rangers i wish i could ride that di- dinosaur whatever they did in power rangers you know it's kind of it is escapism so when 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 things aren't real i kind i can kind of understand or, or make exceptions for it in, in, in sort of rom-coms because I understand that. It's just that I, I didn't really... It, it's okay for it to be escapism, but it still needs some kind of real, um, tangible thing for, for the relationship for me. And I didn't, like I mentioned earlier, I, did, I didn't get any of that. It's okay for it to be escapism in the sense you watch it and you, you can imagine that it's, oh, this is oh, this is really nice, this is ideal. But you've still got... I mean... Jason Segel, yeah, he was okay in it. You know, Emily Blunt, yeah, she was. She wasn't bad. Neither of them put in particularly bad performances. I just didn't like the writing between the characters. I think if it's been sold as being the reality of how a relationship between two people is, I I didn't buy into that. I didn't, didn't get that. So, on the, well, oh, maybe no, it was just me. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe you haven't got a heart. No. Just, yeah, my <laughs> black, my black heart, or my stone Your black zombie my heart. Yeah. <laughs> On, on, on that note, not, not the zombie note, on, on the note about um, the sort of believability of the relationship. Obviously, I haven't seen this one, but we've talked about 500 Days of Summer before, which I really liked, actually, because it's the only rom, well, rom-com film without following the sort of rom-com conventions and was very realistic and sort of a bit brutal at times in the sort of harsh way it showed that relationship. And it wasn't yep. all perfect and idealised. And I liked it purely because it, it played with those conventions and sort of was like, it's yeah. boy meets girl, but then there's no happy ending. Uh, they make that clear from the outset. Yeah. And 
I know you were a bit unconvinced by it, James. Has anybody else seen 500 Days of Summer? No. 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 Although uh, my favourite bits of, as I said at the time, my favourite bits of 500 Days of Summer were the very realist. I think 500 Days of Summer's real strength was in showing the the negative aspects of a relationship. Bits I didn't like were when they were actually in love and she was being all quirky and Zoe Deschanel. Um, <laughs> they were the bits that really annoyed me, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. So maybe yeah. I've also got a black heart as well. I don't know. Um, no, I, I, can, I can understand that. She is very sort of twee and... <laughs> Annoying at yeah. the time. But the, the sure whole she's absolutely of, lovely. Um, yeah, sorry, Zoe. We, we, we're not going to go at you. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to you know, wreck anyone's chances on the podcast again with Zoe Deschanel. Um, I think we've but, already wrecked those ourselves. Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, but the, no, no, I, I agree with you. Like I say, my problem there, I think, and I, I was having this conversation earlier with um, someone uh, about sitcoms and playing with the conventions because we were talking about oh no one's ever done really anything that plays with it massively in the same way that cabin in the woods or scream did with horror so we were we were spitballing having having a look at that um but yeah 500 days of summer did do that a bit but we were saying do you know what if you had a rom-com which didn't end up with them being having a happy ending i think you would feel unfulfilled by that and i think rom-com's strength and also its weakness um is the fact that the end is predictable a bit like titanic or something like that um and my problem with the five-year engagement which i did i did enjoy the five-year engagement there were some great performances and then great writing in my opinion um but what happens is about an hour in you know how it's going to end and if they then take another hour to tie up that story that's too long it, um, it did it did start to drag on and i don't it did, didn't it? and this part of the film's been in in trailers so i mean it's not yeah it's not going to sort of spoil any of the film but the moment where violet gets shot in the leg with um uh what is it, a spear gun crossbow, with, yeah. crossbow which isn't which isn't an unfunny moment in the film itself yeah. but sort of for me that was the moment where the film started to drag on and i was sort of thinking and it yeah. started just plodding along at a slow pace yeah, wasn't it? It was, wasn't. It was just sort of like, can you finish now? And it didn't really get funny again until Jason Segel's character met with his parents for for lunch or brunch or whatever. And it was yeah. a, it was a good. I don't know how long it was because obviously I wasn't looking at my watch I, I or think whatever. It was about, but it was it was, it was half hour. It was it was at least half an hour to forty five minutes. I think where it really was dragging. And I thought, come yeah. on, just you know, ch- the joke. There wasn't. Didn't seem to be any jokes. No, um, and uh, like I said, until he until he met actually. his mum and dad at the restaurant again, and but, but I mean, it it was a reasonably funny film. Like you said, most rom coms seem to be aimed at women, and this one seemed to be aimed across the board. I think you can Definitely. see that when you know Just Apatow is involved. He's obviously been in you know involved with things like Super Bad, which were which were more aimed at lads and men, I suppose. Yeah, and, and it's sort of. You know, has that involvement and the writing from Jason Segel, who's obviously a a man, sort of come yes. come in come into this and sort of made it not it's not a rom com aimed at men, but it's a rom com that's more rounded yeah. in in terms um, of who it's being aimed at. I mean, you know, t- it's probably quite a, quite a stereotypical view, but if you're taking a girl out to a film and she wants to see a rom com, you're sort of like, oh, I can't see what something where something blows up, or you know, but and yeah. it, but 
You know what I mean? But if you went to see this one, you'd probably come out of it not being overly disappointed unless you're rowing with no soul and hate Star Wars. <laughs> well, that that has to be a positive you... step, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, and as much as you really might have disagreed now. Um, in the fact that you, you said, oh, this is written by men. Most bad, most bad rom-coms that are marketed badly at women are actually written by men, but they're written by like committees of men who go, this is what we want. At least with this, this has got a voice. This is, you know, this is Jason Siegel's voice. And at least it has been written he's, by someone who knows what he's doing and he's hasn't doing a tried, lot. To, tried to please women or tried to please. He's just gone, do you know what? This is a story that I want to tell. And you can, you can at least tell, I think there's at least a sense of this has a voice. It might not be a voice that you like. It might be a voice that you go, uh, but it's not been written by committee. And I think that's, that's one of the important aspects of it. My, my main issue with Judd Apatow is he has brought in this new wave of, um, kind of grown up rom-coms, which are a bit nearer the bone, which are aimed at both sexes, but he is also, the one who has made them too long. Uh, I remember watching the 40-year-old virgin for the first time. That's nearly two hours long as well. He he seems to think that f- these films need to be uh, longer than they should be. When Harry Met Sally, for example, is probably the, the archetypal rom-com in terms of um, mainstream Hollywood rom-com, but still quite sharp. That's 90 minutes. It's perfectly paced. These films, they, they need to stop. They've got more good bar. They've got more false endings than Return of the King in a lot of these films. There is too much, oh, is it going to end now? Oh, is it going to end now? Oh, right, okay, oh, no, we've got another obstacle in the way. Um, and in this film, the whole section where they're apart is actually the worst written part of the film, I thought. The bit where they go off on their separate ways for a bit. Mm, that, um, that bit could have just been... It could have just been it, chopped. It obviously, just, yeah. It, a lot shorter. I mean, it's obviously part of the, the story, the plot, but I mean, yeah. it could have been a lot, lot shorter. Uh, yeah. But for all, for all the, you know, talking about the film we've done, we haven't really talked about the funny bits, which we probably should, because yeah. it's a comedy. Yeah. So. Um, but if you've I, seen I, the trailer, you've seen all the funny bits, because they're all in the trailer. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Mm. <laughs> 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 they are. They're, it, honestly. I, but any of the bits that I thought were funny in the film, I've already seen in the trailer. Except maybe the, the, the bit with the Elmo and stuff. I, well, I, I'll be honest, I thought that I thought Risa Fans was brilliant in it. I really enjoyed I thought Risa he, Fans... He did get more um, Welsh as the film went on. He did, and, he did all of a sudden. Uh, and so, as soon as he sort of mentioned that... It, as soon as he sort of mentioned something about his family's farm in Wales, yeah. at first I thought he was just doing British accent, then it turned definite Welsh. Yeah, and he plays somebody Welsh in every film I've seen him in. So is he going to be Welsh in Spider Man? Um, I've be... heard a bit of his voice in Spider Man. There was a there was he definitely wasn't American. He doesn't do accents, does he? No, no, fair play. To but him. I just he wonder, did. you know, he's very proud I... of his Welshness. Yeah, um, so I, I, he I does actually have... a really, really strong Welsh accent that yeah. never changes. <laughs> um, but talking about accents, actually, I thought Emily Blunt's sister, played by Alison Brie, did a really good job mm. of being English. Um, uh, that, I that, thought she had a really good accent. That, cu- and, that couple I actually liked, her and Chris Pratt, who, yeah. who, who seemed to, Chris Pratt, who seemed to be playing Sean William Scott. Yeah, well, actually, it, it was Chris Pratt basically playing Chris Pratt, um, his character, Andy, from Parks and Recreation. Um, which he's been doing brilliantly for four seasons there. It, and it's, again, it's that cinematic shorthand. Um, 
he played exactly the same character as he does in Parks and Rec brilliantly. Um, Alison Brie played a very similar character, although English, to the character she plays in Community and also in Mad Men, that kind of uptight um, younger woman. And Mindy Kaling, the um, the Indian girl on the um, the research group, played exactly the same character that she does in The Office. Um, as well. Was she involved um, in the writing at all? Because she's, she's done a fair bit of writing and producing she, and directing I think, The Office. Yeah, because she's, and she's got a new sitcom starting in September, because she's left The Office to yeah. do a new sitcom in September. I think she was involved in her character's writing. Because the, the other thing about this was, there was a lot of improvisation. It was written by Jason Segel, but apparently um, the reason they have a lot of these sitcom stars in is so they could do a lot of improvisation around the work they were doing. So it wasn't very, it wasn't, you know, an absolute strict script. So her character's bits would have pretty much been down to her, I'm pretty sure of that. And she was really funny. And I think that there were some funny situations. Um, yeah, I, I, I would disagree with Owen when he says all the best bits were in the trailer. Cause I laughed out loud a few times and it kept me smiling throughout most mm, of the film. I, th- I think that's what I said at the beginning, really. It's a, you're not laughing out loud throughout the film. So it's not, it can't be considered a great comedy, whether a rom-com or not, but it, you're certainly smiling throughout most of it. Uh, the jokes are pretty consistently raising a smile if, you know, if not a laugh. And but it was just so slapstick. I mean, I didn't. I didn't think the slapstick was over. There was there was a few bits of slapstick, but I didn't think there was too much. Yeah, because oh, obviously you need to see a few more rom coms in that case. Yeah. If you want to see <laughs> terrible amounts of slapstick, oh. it, yeah, that that's the other thing. I think you can't help but um, but compare this to it to, against type. You know, we can we can talk about it as a standalone film, but we also should say that compared to a lot of other rom coms. This had less of the terrible jokes and terrible slapstick. This was more nuanced as a rom-com. Um, and again, sticking within those, the fact that it has come out of the Hollywood system, it does have to stick to the conventions of romantic comedy. I think this does a good job within those confines. Um, yeah, if you don't like rom-com, you, you're not going to enjoy I, this. I didn't think it... You know, we know some rom-coms where they try and go too serious at some point. So they try and, mm. at some point, they try and stop being a comedy to try and move the plot and the story along and try and develop the characters a bit. I thought this didn't do that, which was good because mm. then it stops being a rom-com yeah. and then just becomes a rom. And I, yeah. I want to go. I think <laughs> there is a, a real lack of proper romantic films though nowadays. No one is going to make a film like that now. Oh, yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between a romantic film, a love story, and a romantic comedy. But I think a lot of romantic comedies try and become a love story and a romantic film that take themselves too seriously when their market is a romantic comedy. And yeah. And it makes the film uh, terrible. I, I or at least ruins the film. Jerry's making there, though, in that, yeah, romantic, general, like, just a great romance doesn't happen very often these days. I think that's a really good point. That think, you, seriously, the last one that made waves was The Notebook, which yeah, is still real terrible. sort of cheese on toast it's kind of. Absolutely. <laughs> and then she made another one of those films recently. Uh, uh, oh, the God, Bow. yeah. yeah um, I, I watched that last week. Oh, you 
poor sod. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. Oh, really? But, okay. Oh, again, right. Channing Tatum, you see. Channing Tatum is the surprise guy of the year for me. He's actually um, turning in some decent performances recently, which is, is amazing. Okay, me. yeah. Just as a little trailer here. Okay. He's really good in Magic Mike. I cannot wait for us to talk about it in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so, I saw Magic Mike earlier tonight. He and actually Matthew McConaughey um, talking about cheesy rom-com crap. Um, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey is, is more guilty than anyone. Exactly. They're just churning Every out generic, bog-standard, terrible... On a woman. Yeah. Um, but um, it... Yeah, just to just to trail what we're going to talk about, in a couple, we are going to review Magic Mike in a couple of weeks, and it does start the two actors who are have who are going to change their entire. Channing Tatum's one of them who all of a sudden can act and can be funny, and Matthew McConaughey, who knew he had depth. Honestly, I, I'm very excited to talk about that film. Any, in a of anyway, weeks. Let's, um, round <laughs> yeah, well, just wrap up the five year engagement. I mean, there were some definite funny bits in it. Let's talk about some of those more, more specifically about ruining the film, I suppose. But yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I just think it had some. It did have some. I, I tell you what, actually, I did like the donut, um, the donut analogy. Uh, I like the engagement party where um, Chris Pratt's character sang that song, which was just yes, about his exes yeah. with a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've seen the joke of someone doing a PowerPoint presentation done a few times, but again, it was done with charm. Um, it, 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 it was fun. And also they clearly put that scene in so they could have a wedding type scene with mm. a best man speech and stuff without, so they could still leave the idea. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say whether or not they do, but they could still leave the idea of, is there or isn't going to be a wedding? Because guess what? We've done like the the jokey wedding bit now, um, which I, all of these films seem like to have. The, to have. We put it at the beginning. I like, um, I like with the, the line in laws and things. I like the I like the line from um, her dad, which sounds like a typical wedding speech joke, but I've never heard it before. Somebody who's been to a lot more weddings than I have might have heard it, but where he said, uh, "Wedding, every wedding needs commitment," but then so does insanity. Yes, it's a nice little line. Yeah. It's probably a Groucho Marx line originally or something like that. But yeah, it, it, it was funny and it had charm, um, in my opinion. It, it's definitely not a film that's going to convert anyone to liking this style of film. No, it's definitely, um, it's definitely not taken... It's not definitely yeah. not overtaken my two favourite rom-coms of Shaun of the Dead and Love Actually. There we go. <laughs> Is Shaun of the Dead a rom? It, it was. It was marketed. It was marketed. I've said this before on a podcast as a zom a rom zom com. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is a, it is a story of um, Sean trying to get his girlfriend Liz back. So yeah, there's, there's, no, it, it's got romantic elements to it, definitely. I, yeah. I, and and actually, if you watch Shaun of the Dead, you'll see it fits a lot of the genre conventions of romantic comedy as well as zombie films. And, um, and talking, so, talking about Sean Liddell has just reminded me of my second one for Triple Bill next week, but I won't ruin everyone. I'll keep everyone on tenterhooks. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, but well, yeah, I think, I think the other bit worth mentioning for, for five-year engagement, which was quite funny, was like Owen brought up earlier, that the Elmo and Cookie Monster bit, where they're arguing, having to put on those voices for the kids. Yes, yeah. Usually, um, usually I wouldn't uh, find that kind of thing funny, and I don't know why, but I did. I think it just kept going on, didn't it? And the more yeah. that they built built it up, the, the funnier it got because it was just getting more and more excruciating. 
I mean, yeah. I laugh, I did laugh out loud, but mostly because the row of five women sat behind me were in hysterics laughing at that, which just made me laugh even more. So, oh, <laughs> it's a good film the to watch with a group of people enjoying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I might not have laughed quite so much, but I suppose the audience that it was aimed at seemed to love it, so. <laughs> so would you say it's one to go like sort of in a group setting or watch with with a bunch of mates then rather than one on one with a girl? Owen, is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't think my mates would like it to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's what I was my, thinking. A group of mates went to watch it, but no, I see what your, your point is. I think it's one of those where if there are, uh, you know, the more other people are laughing at it, the more it's going to... Yeah, I think it needs a busy cinema, doesn't it? Right. It's one of those where you would but, enjoy it more if, if you were laughing along with other people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's not a, a romance, so you, it's not really something you could just bring a, you know, a girl around to watch with you or anything like that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's more comedy than it is romance, I think. And it just wasn't my, my kind of comedy. Yeah. Well, I think that's all for this week's podcast uh so yeah thanks for listening um james would you like to end off the pod by telling people what's up next week and where they can find everything yes yeah so uh next week we will be talking about the amazing spider-man um the reboot uh, directed by mark weber starring andrew garfield and emma stone We'll also be going through remaking and remodeling and rebooting films for our triple bill. So we'll come up with those films, those franchises that we think need to be redone. And most importantly of all, we'll be saying how we do it as well. Uh, you can catch us on the website, failedcritics.com. You can tweet us at at failedcritics or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritic. Excellent. Well, yes, thanks for listening and we'll be back. Same time next week.